Oddities, late night movies with Ben, Rob, and Zach. This is a podcast about cinematic oddities where we discuss any media that is too bizarre, abnormal, or off kilter for contemporary audiences. Occasionally, these projects gel. Most times, they crash hard into the realm of obscurity. Join us as we delve into the cult classic swamp. I'm Ben, an evil witch. I'm not scared. Ben, we've we've done a good bit of Henry Selleck by this point. We are finishing up the Henry Selleck series with his final, at least as we know by this time of this recording, his final film, Coraline. And I'm so excited to talk about this movie as I, I've been setting up this entire series. Hell, as I set up back when we talked about Monkey Bone in the 2001 Fort Year, however many months ago that was. And I figured to commemorate this final episode of the Henry Selleck series, which I hope one day we will get another movie from him, I figured we would commemorate this event by none other than talk of a spam email we received to the Cinemodities Gmail account. <laughs> uh, well, Rob, I, I was going to say that the word satisfaction never really meant anything to me until I finished watching all of the Henry Selleck movies. Of course, of course. Uh, which, as everybody which... knows, this series has been very contentious between Ben and I, even starting on the Patreon episode about Henry Selleck. And yes. I'm glad that Ben, even though he might not fully agree with many of the points I make, he has come around to appreciate the creative force that Henry Selleck is. Is that fair to say? That's something like that that's fair to say. Uh, but what I was going to say is that is that now I think I might have to redefine the word satisfaction because satisfaction might be something you can only achieve through the reading of spam emails. <laughs> that, that also is kind of fair because I get a lot of a lot of happiness when we get some really cool spam emails. So it's been a while since we talked about spam emails, and I honestly believe I think the last time we did it was our Tomb Raider episode when we talked about good old optosperm increasing our chances of getting pregnant by fifty percent. So r- before I get into this one, it's one spam email that I have for today. I just wanted to mention to Ben real quick um, in that Tomb Raider episode. I very quickly, very briefly, like, we, did, we didn't spend time on it. We didn't go back and forth about it. Just very briefly, I said something along the lines of, whenever I see spam emails with a different font in their subject, my eyes are drawn to them, and I'm more likely to click on them and, and see what's in them. Ever since I said that, we only get spam emails in different fonts in our subjects. I'm not kidding. I'm not making this up. This isn't a bit. This is legitimately now the case. Uh, we have not gotten a spam email in these last five, four or five months since we did that episode that has not had weird fonts or emojis in these subject lines. So somebody's Those out there Google listening bots, to yeah. us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Got the NSA or whatever checking us out. So the spam email I wanted to mention, uh, which I think is is great, directly coinciding with the academic dive we've done into Henry Selick in this series, we got an email. With the subject line, Jay-Z wants to give Cinemod a $9,520 scholarship. And of course, if everybody doesn't remember, it was a while ago, Cinemod is what the internet thinks our first name is. So right off the bat, we're on a great start. But this caught my eye because Jay-Z was in the title. And I don't think there's anything we've ever said like, oh, we we like Jay-Z. I don't think we've ever talked about Jay-Z at all. So this was weird to me. But that's the subject. And in the body of the email, I I just want to read this. Yes, Cinemod, Jay-Z wants to give students like yourself a scholarship of up to $9,520 to go to college or a trade school. Click your link ASAP to see how to receive it. Directly underneath this, in much smaller font, 
None of the above featured celebrity sponsors endorses or is in any way affiliated with USA Scholarship Guide or this promotion. (laughs) (laughs) So I love, I just love the fact that it's like, Jay-Z wants to give you a scholarship. Next line, Jay-Z is in no way affiliated with the scholarship. (laughs) It was one of the spam emails that I was like, spam email? Why are you undercutting yourself? Own your stupidity. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's, uh... Interesting. Yes. I, I, it makes me think that maybe there's some, like, actual body of people behind this spam email as opposed to the typical just we're trying to steal your information spam. I, I kind of am glad that you bring that up because I already mentioned the fact that I, you know, said that uh, it, it catches my eye when there's a different font in the subject line. I, the thing that it, I, I didn't know if I wanted, really wanted to talk about, ever since we discussed Tomb Raider, which, of course, as everybody who has listened to that episode knows, the first 40 minutes is womb raider we're getting a lot of more sexual request spam emails so somebody is clearly out there listening to us ben (laughs) that's interesting um have they chimed in on on what they think womb raider means none of the spam emails because i delete a lot of them you know when we get a spam email that starts with you know expletive 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 you know things like that i don't i don't want to use the words that ben knows i am usually very comfortable with using because Coraline's episode does not deserve them but i i don't click on them you know when it comes down to you know let's let's check out some uh sexually explicit acts through spam email i don't check on them to see if they're commenting on womb raider <laughs> well in the future please do i i, I do okay. want to know but i'm glad you brought up spam because I've been having a, a weird little interaction with some spam myself lately. Ooh, okay, okay. And I and I have yet to determine whether this is um, was caused by a real person who was just confused, um, <laughs> or if this is some some long con that I don't see coming at all. Sure. The, but I am. So I, I've kept an eye on my bank accounts and everything, and, my, and I monitor my credit report. So so I'm I'm not too concerned at the moment that that someone has stolen my identity or something of the like. But I have been receiving phone calls for somebody named Amar Khalil. Okay. And I'm talking like from solar panel installation people and from Ah. uh, like credit card benefits people and from like a bunch of different companies that all want to talk to Amar Khalil. And to make this even better, I have received a call from one of the Indian spam scam call centers Trying to get a hold of a Mark Leal. Okay, okay. So, so that was kind of interesting, and I, and I you know, I, I've kind of at this point, I've adopted the habit of being like, I don't know who a Mark Leal is. This is not his phone number. <laughs> Remove me from this list. Yeah, like I just kind of go through that, you know, real quick uh, every every time. And uh, and the Indian scammer was just like, "Fuck you," and hung up on me. Oh wow. Okay. <laughs> you know the, the way they do uh, whenever they decide that you've wasted their time more than they've wasted yes, yours. Yes, yes, That's That's kind of crazy. Okay, okay. Um, I, I'm, look, I'm looking at our, our Patreon, right? Amir Khalil just signed up for $200 a month? Oh, wow, okay. He just heard you, Ben. <laughs> so, but I've been getting tons of phone calls from this guy. And on a second spam-related note, never, ever, ever indicate that you want information about the government uh, like Obamacare health insurance. 
because you will be spam called literally to fucking death. Uh, yeah, you're you're not wrong there. Absolutely, <laughs> that that might be its own whole episode. <laughs> I mean, I've got to the point that I've gotten text messages that say things like, "If you want this to stop, you just have to answer us," and I'm like, "This feels oddly like mafia behavior." Yep, yep. Like, if you want us to stop harassing you and killing your family, you'll just pay us protection money. Yes, and I'm yes. like, so so I uh, luckily I have a new phone. And because I don't want to give free advertising to anybody ever, um, I won't tell you who, who made it. But it does have a feature where I can have a robot answer and, oh, and tell them. I've heard about that. I've heard about that. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. okay. And it'll be like, the owner of this device is screening your call. Please tell us what it's about. So I, I like to have my robot answer their robot <laughs> and you know, see where we can get from there. Fighting robots with robots. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm just glad that we're finally there that I have my own robot now. Yes. Oh, 100%. Absolutely, you know. Well, that that was a great tangent into the the bothersome world of spam emails, spam calls, spam connections. Jeez, everything sucks in the world. That's something that, you know, Zach, you and I said throughout the entirety of the the 2001 Fort year, even though, you know, we're, we're three weeks out of that, but we're still in the shadow of it. Man, everything sucks. You know what doesn't suck? Coraline. <laughs> I thought you were going to say the Patreon. Uh, well, that, that doesn't suck either. Our podcast definitely does not suck. But I, I guess you know I missed that opportunity because I am so jacked up to talk about Coraline, and I figured the best way to start. Not only am I so jacked up to talk about about Coraline the movie. I'm jacked up to talk about Coraline the character, and I just want to get this out, you know, right off the bat. Coraline is a cutie patootie. She is such a cutie. She's the baddest bitch in the game. When Gal Gadot leaves Wonder Woman, I'm going to make a like a Kickstarter camp or not a Kickstarter, but like a, a you know, sign this petition to get Coraline to play the next Wonder Woman. I want her to be my best friend. I love the character of Coraline. And I just wanted to get that out of the way because uh, when I talk about Coraline, the phrase cutie patootie might come up more times than I'm comfortable with it coming up. But man, that's one of my notes. Literally, watching this movie for this recording might have been the, I don't know, 10 millionth time I've seen it. My note is Coraline is such a cutie patootie, possibly the cutest patootist. <laughs> Uh, I'm not surprised that that's where you went with that, um, but I will say that for somebody who has such a, I don't know, like, a, who's so in awe of this character, it, I find it really weird that you're pronouncing Caroline wrong. <laughs> did you did you actually know, that this episode is going to be all over the place because I'm so fucking excited about it, did you know actually that the, the, the Coraline, the original character from Neil Gaiman's novella Coraline, came from the fact that he misspelled Caroline? <laughs> Like he lit like Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman is not someone I have a lot of artistic respect for. Creative respect, possibly. His creative process is one of the things where I read interviews with him, and I'm like, this is how like an idiot thinks, you know? But like literally, the thing is like he's like, I wanted to write down Caroline, but I wrote Coraline. I thought, who is Coraline? What has she gone through? And I'm like, get the fuck over yourself, Neil Gaiman. Okay, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Goddamn, that's pretentious. Oh, Neil Gaiman and pretentious might go hand in hand, those two words. Well, and I think I wanted to throw this out here. One, before I throw it over to you, Ben, I, I need to mention, because I know in a few episodes prior that I've I've used the phrase cutie patootie before, which is one of my favorite phrases. I don't know, there's something about that that 
rhyming that just rolls off the tongue for me. Cutie patootie is not sexual. And this is the first time it's coming up that it might be misconstrued as such, because I know back when the fort year, when Zach and I discussed um, American Pie 1 and 2, I called Allison Hannigan a cutie patootie, but she was of high school age and a sexual deviant. And I've described a few other characters, uh, such as in um, uh, Sally from Nightmare Before Christmas, as a cutie patootie, who might also, ha- or does also have detachable limbs, which is a very cute part of her. Cutie patootie is not sexual. Cutie patootie is someone you see and you go, man, I like the way you look and I want to be your best friend. Because Coraline's 11 years old, okay? I just want to set that right off the bat. I'm not saying, you know, Coraline, we should, you know, rule 34 her or whatever the hell the internet porn thing is. I'm saying she's a cutie patootie. She's the baddest bitch in the game. I want to hang out with her one day. Now I want to throw it over to you, Ben. What do you think of Coraline the character? Is she a cutie patootie? (laughs) (laughs) um well i do want to say if you didn't want the internet to create porn of her bringing it up was not the best way to oh well well no it's it's done i i'm i you're right about that but it's done this movie came out in 2009 it was done this movie came out in february 2009 uh the the terrible terrible degenerate illicit drawings of Coraline came out in march of 2009 so I don't think I'm causing any of that. I don't condone it because she's a wonderful lady who needs all of the respect in the world. She's a, she's a, she's a sassy cutie patootie. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely think that the character is cute. I'll give you that. Okay, okay. Um, Do you think she's the baddest a... bitch in the game? That's another question. <laughs> I may have had an emotion or two while I was watching the movie. I was like, we could be friends. You know? I, I might have had an emotion or... A million while I watch this movie. <laughs> um, baddest bitch in the game. I mean, I definitely think that for an eleven-year-old, she's she's decent at outsmarting a, a button bitch. Um, <laughs> so, baddest bitch in the game. I mean, maybe not at eleven is she the baddest bitch in the game, but certainly by sixteen she would be. Oh, I like that take. I like that take, Ben. Where you know she's uh, she's the, um, the clearly the potential to you know, evolve into the baddest bitch in the game. Oh, she's wonderful. Coraline is fucking wonderful. I don't, I don't like action figures. I mean, you know, Ben and I have worked with action figures before. We, there was one time we thought Song Street Commodities was going to be action figure based, if Ben remembers that. And I do have some action figures, some of Ben's that he left with me, which one day I'm sure I'll return to him. Good old, uh, what, Batman and, and Mr. Roshi, or Master Roshi. Master Roshi, yeah. But, like, in the last 20 years... I have not gotten an action figure. Coraline is the one thing I'm always kind of tempted every time I watch the movie. I'm like, man, don't I kind of want a nine and a half inch Coraline action figure? Like, I fucking love Coraline's character so much. And I guess that's a great segue into saying that this is going to be one of those episodes, much more so than the previous two of uh, Nightmare Before Christmas and James and Giant Peach. Probably this is going to be closest to Monkey Bone. Coraline, the film, and the character are perfect. I absolutely love this movie. Like I've said before, I've seen it 10 billion times. This is something I'll just go and watch scenes from if I ever have a moment to where it's, you know, it it falls in the same category, I think, on that nature of adventure time. Like, you know, if you just have downtime, like let's say I just got to eat something. Like I got to chow down a sandwich real quick before I got to leave for work or for whatever. And I got, you know, 
10 to 15 minutes, I'll either put on a random episode of Adventure Time or I'll put on a scene from Coraline. Like, this movie speaks to me so hard. And of course, as Ben knows, as the thesis of this whole Henry Selleck series has been, is talking about the meanings of these movies. But what I'm saying here for this one is I think it goes beyond my explanation of what I think this movie means. I subjectively love this movie. Everything about it. This movie can do no wrong as far as I'm concerned. It's the textbook definition of the saying that every frame is a painting. And going one step beyond that, every frame and every frame is a painting and every painting is absolutely beautiful. The music is entirely amazing. The idiosyncratic kind of French-driven soundtrack is beautiful that I listen to on its own. The craftsmanship and care put into every detail in the world of Coraline, both other and regular is unfathomable to me. And this is just kind of like my my overture of what I want to talk about in this episode. But of course, there's two big questions that I have to ask for you, Ben. The first one is, have you ever seen this before? And two, what are your thoughts? And, and, and once again, I think this might be a thesis of the Henry Selick series. It's been a quite contentious debate between what we like and dislike about these stop-motion movies. Uh, don't worry about offending me with Coraline. I think we might have been a little offended at each other in Nightmare Before Christmas when we started this thing. But don't worry about offending me with Coraline because I know that subjectively, you're wrong. This is one of the best movies ever. <laughs> subjectively, uh, of course. <laughs> I'm glad that you prefaced that with subjectively. Um, no, so let's see. I, I was actually concerned you weren't going to ask me about context because you were gushing so hard that I wasn't sure that I was ever going to speak <laughs> in this episode. Uh, no, oh, she's, a cutie, so I, she's, a, she's a cutie patootie. Just want to let you know that. <laughs> Just the way my cheese graters, the cheese greatest. That's, that's a little throwback to when Rob and I live near each other. <laughs> But anyway, so so uh, have I ever seen Coraline before? Actually, no, I had not seen okay. it. Uh, I went into this movie completely blank. I actually watched it today uh, because timing and stuff just didn't work out. I didn't get to watch it last night like I intended to. So I actually watched it today uh, before our recording. So it's pretty fresh in my mind. Nice. I had not seen it before. What did I think of it? Uh, so well, well, before you get into your thoughts, have you heard of it before? I had heard of it. I okay. heard of it when it came out. Uh, it was kind of marketed towards like what, like teenage emo kids? Yes, or yes, very, very much a um, a a young adult type of movie because I believe that's what the the Neil Gaiman novella is is a young adult type of book. Okay, so girl, I, girl, girl, in, instantiated, of course, yeah. Uh, and I definitely got the vibe that it was like a little more geared towards like a gothic crowd. I don't know if that's actually true or not. This is what I could, the vibe I got from from the marketing. I would say first thoughts: the ideal target audience for this. I don't think it's children or young adults. Oh, oh no, I, I agree with you there. It's me. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So this this movie should have been marketed just to Rob. Um, but no, I, I think in terms of marketing, if if that's and, and maybe you know more about this than I do because it's vague memories. I think in terms of marketing, they missed something when they when they kind of relegated this to the world of, of young adults and children. Absolutely, um, and and I I do want to get into that more, of course, with the um the the idea that you know this is the first film by Leica, the first feature length film by Leica. Of course, Ben and I on our Patreon talking about Henry Selick, we did the first short film Moon Girl by Leica. This is their their actual first movie, and I think Leica plays a role into that marketing. But please continue, Ben, about your your thoughts on the film. Initial thoughts when when I, when I first started watching it, you know, uh, and Rob knows this about me. I think the audience knows it, the cinema audience. Sorry. 
yes. uh, knows it knows it pretty well by now. I'm very story oriented oriented when it comes to I'm story oriented. There we go. I'm just fucking. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so I'm I'm story oriented when it comes to movies, and uh, I definitely from the from the get I was like, okay, this is a movie that's going to have a story. Mm-hmm. Like this is not this is not some of the crazy shit that I've watched because Rob just told me that I should, and I'm actually just going to be assaulted by colors for. For, you know who, who knows how long this ain't uh, no trees lounge which oh no. I, which i think has come out at this point but uh if not look forward to that everybody <laughs> <laughs> yeah who knows uh time what is it? time turnstile the turnstiles yes of course we go, through, we go through the turnstiles uh, once every um after before and after every recording of course <laughs> so who knows when what has come out or if when it comes out whether it will be coming out in reverse or forward I, who knows <laughs> I, and that's that strictly has to do with how the bytes are uploaded to the website. It has nothing to do with the content of the the episode, which yep. <laughs> I've hotly argued with people about, and I think it should affect whether the whether the audio <laughs> plays in reverse or not. But it doesn't. I I'm not in charge of that. Um, anyway, what was I saying? Thoughts oh, on yes, the movie? This, this movie, <laughs> this movie that I watched. Story, your story ended. Yes. 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 So it. This movie, ben uh, wanted to talk about packet loss real quick for that moment. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where that came from. <laughs> so, so this movie, um, definitely, like, right from the get, I'm like, okay, this is definitely a, a story-based movie. Uh, this is something that is probably going to be accessible to, me, accessible to me in that sense, and I think I'm going to enjoy it. Um, so, like, right off the bat, I was like, I like the way it looks. Uh, I, I really like the detail and like the opening scene with where we see I guess I think it's the witch's hand and she's doing yep. the sewing and making the doll that looks like Coraline. Wonderful, and, wonderful opening credits that truly establishes the detail that we're gonna see in this stop motion. Like this yeah. this movie immediately right in that opening credit scene just teaches the audience that we are doing stop motion with patience and care on ones. And it is so perfect. Yeah, it, and it was, and it is it is kind of mesmerizing to watch, and the details is very impressive. Definitely a little creepy, uh, that opening scene, and that was that was the first thing where I was like, I don't know that this should have been marketed towards little kids. Yes. Uh, or young adults. <laughs> like, I think that this is maybe a, a little too weird for, for some of that audience that it was trying to shoot for. And then, I mean, o- overall, like, my only... I don't know that I would call it a complaint necessarily, but the only things I, I did, didn't think were like perfect or, or really good. So I did think the movie dragged just a little bit. Like I think that they could have probably cut five to seven minutes off of this movie. Okay. And it would, or they could have punched in a little more story content as opposed to some of her adventuring towards the end while she's like playing the game with the witch in air quotes. Sure. sure. Uh, and I put it in air quotes because the, the game that she's playing with the witch is like she went up to the witch and was like I'm gonna get all the stuff I want and if I do you're gonna let me leave and so I was yes. like this isn't a lot of a game but she is 11 so I'll be a little bit forgiving here sure um, sure I, I'm glad you bring that up I will have thoughts on that 100% <laughs> um, so so the movie goes a little bit long um, there are parts where I think it could have hurried along a little bit uh, the mouse circus for instance we'll, we'll probably talk about like I could have done with a little bit less of the mouse circus in the uh, other world, the so the mouse performance in the other world. Yes, yeah, Ben. Yeah, I know. I, know. I could watch that for. I could watch that for a hundred minutes. Jesus so, Christ! What a what a 
that that's one of the scenes, you know, which we'll talk about so many scenes. That's one of the masterpieces of Henry Selleck's animation style that he's able to not only do all those things, but control the camera in such a way to keep spatial orientation at every single point of, of, of that performance. Well, I'm not going to argue that it's not well done. Uh, what I, yes. what I yes. am going to say is that it is, that is the point where the, where the movie loses focus on the story. And I think as somebody who's very story oriented, uh, points like that in movies tend to lose me. Okay. I'm just like, okay. I'm not, I don't care. I'm here for the story. I'm not here for you to, to show off what it is you can achieve, which in this case was something worth showing off. And I think that that in a short film by itself is fantastic. Sure. But in the middle of the story I'm trying to watch, I don't want that interruption. Okay. okay. Uh, no, no, I know, so, I know where you're coming from. Sure. And then the, the, the clue, I guess, that the witch gave about, the three wonders that I prepared for you, there's something hidden in plain sight or whatever. Um, I thought that clue just didn't make a lot of sense. Okay. In ter- and then whenever we interact with the wonders, like the first one, she kind of has to find it. I was like, okay, this is interesting. And like the circus one, like the dude just like shows it to her right away. Sure. And, sure. and in the, in the one with the play, like it's the first thing presented to her when she walks up to the stage. And so I was like, these aren't, I wouldn't say these are hidden. Yeah, okay, you're not wrong. That That's actually interesting that you bring that up. I thought you were were about to say that you had more of a problem in the fact that the clue that the um, the Beldum, of course, the, the other mother, that gives Coraline is they're hidden in the three wonders I've made just for you. And almost immediately after, we have Coraline having, like, the Sherlock Holmes, moments, Holmes moment, and she says to herself, the three wonders? I thought you were going to complain that that line was stupid because of course we've seen three things in the other world. They have to be the three wonders. I'm, I'm surprised that you didn't because once again, I, I love that line. I, I kind of, in the first time I watched this movie thought that line was, was dumb because it's like, haven't you been living this with us Coraline? Like this, the three things you've seen, but okay. Okay. But you're not wrong, which is another thing I'll bring up, which why I think those eyeballs that she has to find, she has to find the eyes of the, um, the ghost children, that they're not as hidden because of, one, the adder stone she receives, and they're not hidden well because of what this story is trying to emulate. And I don't want to dive into that right now. Okay, but yeah, interesting, I thought you were going to have more problems. Like, literally, when I watched this last night for this recording, I, and, you know, Coraline goes, The Three Wonders! What three things have I seen in this movie? I thought you were going to be like, wow, Coraline's a fucking idiot. <laughs> no, so, I mean, I will give it to you. That's a little bit of a blue clues, Blue's Clues moment. Like, yes, yes. <laughs> but coming from an 11-year-old, like, and, nice, and it could be nice. because I was like, I mean, like I said, I, I did kind of have to, to watch this in, in a little bit of a rush, and I wasn't necessarily able to focus on it entirely the whole time. So I, whenever she said the three wonders, I was I, I didn't immediately go to the three things that we had, had been okay. presented with. Okay. And in part, I think it was because there were there were three things that were like specifically presented to her. Mm-hmm. But then there were also like there was also a lot of other stuff in the other world uh, that were not specifically presented to her, like the, the meals and stuff where it's like she, sure. she experienced those. And those were so I was like. What wondrous things is this referring to? I wasn't okay. exactly sure. No, so that, that's kids... actually a really interesting point. You know that you were, um, you know, maybe I don't want to, uh, I don't want to speak out of turn for you. Maybe frame this as a question: Were you so enthralled in the world of this movie that you didn't realize that the three wonders had to be the three musical numbers she encountered? Because that's oh, yeah. what screamed out to me. 
I don't even know if I noticed that they were all three musical numbers. Okay, like, nice, nice. So I, so yeah, I was definitely engrossed by the, by the story for the most part, and and so yeah, no, I, I didn't have any problem with that line. Although I can see why why knowing who I am, why you would think I would. Yeah, yeah. I, like I said, I, I thought you were gonna say something like that, and um, I, I felt something like that. You know, even upon you know until I fully started to get at the idea of what I think about what Henry Selick's going for with this movie. I, I always kind of found that line and a few other lines as really like, what is this doing here? Like, you know, this is like a uh, like a like a thorn in the side of this movie. But now I've come to find that it really works because I think there's a a clear inspiration for what this movie is. But we the meaning because Ben, our cinema audience knows Ben and I know once we get into the meaning of this movie, that's going to take up the bulk of this conversation. So I don't want to jump into that too much because as as Ben said, we are both very story. He's story oriented. I'm story oriented as well. But I need to talk about, which I'm so glad you said, this movie is beautiful. It is gorgeous. This is, in terms of my context, which, uh, you know, I'm sure everybody's gotten in, in in the Monkey Bone episode, in me talking about all of Henry Selleck, even if it's not a Henry Selleck movie, whenever I bring him up and anything else we talk about with animation, this was the movie. You know, I I did not see this in theaters. One of my biggest regrets in life, which I didn't even, like, miss out on. I just didn't know that it really was coming out. I caught this on, like, an HBO or something later in 2009. And I remember that I watched it with a few other friends, and I was enthralled. It was like a wide-eyed, oh, my God, what am I seeing? And I remember very specifically the first time I saw this movie at the end of it, some of my friends were like, what was that? Like, that... Did that make sense? Like, what was going on? And I was like, did you see how beautiful that was? And there was a few years in my life where I didn't really get a grasp on the story Coraline was presenting. This lost me in its artwork, in its creativity, in the design of the entire film. And I am so glad that you agree with me, Ben, that this is beautiful because, of course, something we've talked about before both, you know, in Monkey Bone, in the start of the Henry Selleck series on Patreon, and in, you know, uh, James and Giant Peach, I think especially, these kind of stop-motion things you've said look kind of unnerving to you sometimes. Yeah, most of the time. This movie is ungodly beautiful. Like, there's some times that I watch this movie and I'm just watching it to see what's in this movie. It, it's wonderful. <laughs> I, I definitely will say that I... I never, like, there was no point where I felt like I was watching stop motion in the same kind of jerky, stuttery way that I don't like stop motion. Yeah, I'm so glad you bring that up because, like I mentioned before, you know, the movie at the opening credits is teaching you that they're going to be doing stop motion on ones. Uh, There's no corroboration for this, but this might be the only stop motion movie I think might be animated on point fives. (laughs) (laughs) Like, there is so much care. And on that point, while we're talking about the artistry and the beauty of this movie, um, something that, you know, if um, I I don't think Ben has watched any of the background features. I've watched a lot of the making of this movie because I love it so much. Every single thing you see on this movie was physically constructed. There are no computer-generated images in this film. The only thing they used a computer for was compositing. So you might think, and this is what I thought back in the day, you'd be like, well, no, we, we see the night sky, and there's stars in the night sky. Wouldn't it be just make sense to have a black, you know, matte paint, a black screen, and then they just put dots, dots of yellow or white, offish white light? Nope. They constructed everything. Black tarp, hanging from that tarp, small light bulbs that created that light. Literally, every blade of grass, every strand of hair, everything you see in this movie is physically constructed. 
the craft and patience that goes into creating something like this is so respectable for me. Ben knows me and my ordeal with spending hours drawing the same radio tower over and over, so he knows I love that idea. But I think that it all shows in this movie. Here's the thing. This movie took about five to six years to make because of this. Yeah, zero surprise there. A good week of filming, and this is something I didn't know when to do my research for this episode, a good week of filming produced 100 seconds of content. <laughs> yes, Ben's eyes just widened because isn't that insane? It's insane that any company would undertake spending that much time and money on a product that could flop. I, I, I am so glad you bring that up because that might lead us directly into Leica, this being their first for, first feature film. But I think something that you know I want to put forward and I hope Ben's agree with Ben Ben agrees with. That's what makes this movie feel so natural and feel so good to be in the world of. Like, I don't watch yep. this and say, oh, I'm, like, you know, we watch, you know, Rockadoodle on the Patreon. We watch other animated movies, and we're like, yeah, we know it's animated. This is one of the movies that's stop motion, and I'm enthralled by it. It's like a Studio Ghibli, uh, Miyazaki spirited away. I can't tell after 30 minutes that I'm watching an animated movie because I feel like I'm right there. It's something that has done the greatest thing, the accomplishment of what every filmmaker has wanted to do, is remove the window of cinema. Get rid of your peripheral vision. Make you feel like like you're in the world you're watching. And I think that that patience and craft accomplishes it for Coraline. I'll definitely say that Coraline achieved it, and I'm sure that the time timeline had a lot to do with it. Um, I'm intrigued at the idea that they did some of the um, deconstruction of the other world whenever she's walking away from the house. I'm intrigued at the idea that they did that in a constructed way. That's all that's... physical sets. That is all physical creations of different sets and and you like I said the only way the only use of a computer in this movie is compositing to make those transitions and things like that one of the very famous things about Coraline is that you know the scene where the other mother transforms into the slender more demonic version of herself that lasts 6 seconds that's all it lasts that's something like oh oh 15,000 frames this is the first stop-motion movie to ever do a transformation on screen. No other stop-motion movie has ever featured that because they would always say it was too much work. And literally, imagine you go from, you know, small original mother to gangly, long-necked, long-limbed, you know, other mother. They had to make a different puppet every single step of the way and film those in the same place and film those so continually that it makes it believable. And like we said, it only lasts six seconds. This is the first stop-motion movie to ever have a transformation scene on screen. It's That's amazing. Crazy. And I have such a respect for that. But I think the, the big point is that, you know, that makes us feel like we're in this movie. Makes us feel real. Because, of course, transformations have happened before, just on that topic. But we've, we've seen it. We've lived it. It happened in goddamn, you know, uh, James and Giant Peach, where they do it in silhouette. Happened in Nightmare Before Christmas, where they do it off screen, where it's something like, uh-oh, this character's getting a little shaky. Cut away to somebody else. When we cut back to that character, they're in a new form. And it's yeah. always been off screen. And even even the, the cheap, you know, 2D animation movies we've talked about. Probably Rockadoodle, you know, it has something where, like, the kid goes from live action to animated. You don't see that actually happen. It happens off screen. They decided, let's put the work in and let's do it on screen. And that yeah. is why Leica is so important. In terms of immersion, why the fuck would we not be looking at the thing that's changing? Exactly. Especially since we're looking at it from Coraline, our main character's perspective. Yeah, that's, 
that's a solid decision, and uh, I think an important one. And, and and you can imagine it, right? The the essence of that same exact scene where the other mother starts to get angry, and you know she's going to have to transform. And instead of actually showing her transform, we cut back to a shot of Coraline's face, looking shocked, and the silhouette of the shadow changes in the background. But here, we see it actually happen, and it makes you realize the horror of what Coraline is dealing with. It's, it's wonderful. Yes. So, Laika. Laika's the first studio to ever do this. This is the first feature-length film from Laika. And there's just a few things I want to talk about Laika because I've been waiting so long to get to it because I think they're absolutely fundamentally fantastic. In the early 2000s, there is a stop-motion studio called Will Vinton Studios, and they don't really have their own movies. They just do kind of, you know, stop-motion work if a music video, a commercial, a movie needs some stop-motion, which, which still happens in the early 2000s, of course. And Will Vinton Studios is running out of money. And in the process of running out of money, they, they search out new people to find funding, and one of the people who works for Will Vinton Studios is none other than someone named Travis Knight. And Travis Knight, knowing that his company wants to find some more funding, reaches out to his father, Phil Knight. And in the mid-2000s, I think 2003, uh, Will Vinton Studios is bought by Phil Knight. And in 2005, Phil Knight and Travis Knight found Leica Studios. Phil Knight, for anyone who does not know is the co-founder of Nike. Leica Studios exists because of Nike. <laughs> I think what, la maybe last year, Phil Knight was the 26th richest person on the planet um, because he has, uh, Nike owns so many other brands and stuff like that. Literally, how amazing is this? The, the pinnacle of stop motion, and something we'll get to later, the, the only reason true stop motion exists now in the modern era, even back to 2019, the last true stop motion movie we got in America, is because of Nike. How crazy is that? <laughs> That's pretty weird. Uh, I mean, especially to think of something as, like, so artistically created and so, like, painstakingly carefully created being a product of the brand that makes mass-produced shoes. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> that's that's interesting. Yes, so so Phil Knight and his son Travis Knight form Leica before it actually gets formed in 2005 when they're when they're building up the funds and building up everything getting ready to go to make this company. They hire Henry Selick as supervising director for the company. So when Leica first gets founded, it's Phil Knight as, you know, founder Travis Knight, his son, as CEO, and Henry Selick as supervising creative force. And that's the thing where it's like, yes, you know, if they want to do stop motion, because Travis Knight was a stop motion animator, that they get Henry Selick, he's going to be that driving force. When they form, there are two movies that they have in production. One is Coraline, and one is another one that never gets made, and literally has never been made to this day. It's like the adventures of something and something. I didn't even write it down because it's, it's irrelevant, because it gets thrown out so fast. And the reason it gets thrown out so fast is because Henry Selick says, I'm going to be your creative director if you let me do whatever the hell I want to do. And they agree. And that is why Coraline exists. Henry Selick had create, complete creative control over this film. And I honestly believe this is the culmination of everything he's ever wanted to do with stop motion, with making every single thing realistic, with making sure every single thing is animated in every single frame, and making sure he has complete control over the story. Because not only is he the director of Coraline, he's the writer of Coraline as well. This might be his most pure movie in terms of his creative force. 
And I love Laika for that. Like I said, we're going to talk about Laika a little later on, because very shortly after the release of Coraline, when Laika starts to put forth what else they want to do, Henry Selick leaves. So Henry Selick is basically the Kickstarter for Laika. Nike and Henry Selick are the Kickstarter for Laika, and (laughs) Henry Selick leaves, and we have not gotten a movie from him in the last 12 years. That's a do- that's a bad thing as far as I'm concerned. I don't know if Henry Selick, you know, we talked a little bit on our Patreon the um you know the his canceled movie which got to see some stuff of, but that was a little bit of history that I wanted to give on Leica. I thought it had something to do with Puppet King. Shadow oh, Puppet. Shadow Kings. Yeah, the Shadow King is the one that gets canceled from Disney for Henry Selick. Absolutely. With that being said, I I'm glad we got to do a little bit of Leica. I want to talk more about the other Leica movies later. I I guess then you know, I, 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 once again, I don't want to dive directly into the the meaning of this movie or anything like that. Um, I, I guess I, I think the only thing to touch on prior to that would be, I, I'm trying to think of the best way to say that. Do you think this movie is comparable to Monkey Bone? So, of course, Monkey Bone is his previous movie, and he follows it up directly with Coraline. Uh, of course, eight years later, but directly. And I think there's a big divide between his first two movies, which, of course, Ben and I have already discussed, and his second two movies. Monkey Bone has the live-action elements with a few stop-motion things mixed in. And, if, of course, if, if, if for anyone who doesn't remember, I think Monkey Bone is very pointedly about, you know, the art fighting the artist. Or the other way around, the artist fighting the art. I'm kind of interested to see if you have any thoughts on... Do you see Monkey Bone and Coraline as both from the same director? Uh, not not really. Like, they seem pretty disconnected to me. I, I'm, I'm, I kind of feel the same way, which might be the weirdest thing to say at the end of our Henry Selick series, and for how much I've studied Henry Selick as a creative force, I feel like Henry Selick was let off the chain... And made something like he's never made before with Coraline. Yeah, and and you know to to be honest, I think it's probably his best showing. And from what I can remember of the other discussions we've had, I think I like this one the best. Uh, uh, I will I will hold my opinion till the end of the episode when I give my Henry Selick rankings on that. But but I'm glad you think that because Coraline is you know uh, uh, separate from Henry Selick's filmography, separate from a lot of things. I I think Coraline's a masterpiece. Coraline is a an achievement of film. Maybe masterpiece might be subjective. I think more objectively, an achievement of filmmaking that has not come before. There is nothing like Coraline prior to this movie. Of course, there's stop motion and things like that, but there's nothing this creatively stimulative, visually stimulative. It, it's such a unique piece that. And this is another thing, I guess, to transition into the what we think the meaning of this movie is. There's almost a layer, I think, that I appreciate separate from the meaning. The art artistry, the, the artistic creation and force behind the look of this movie stands on its own in a way that I don't think anything else really does. Uh, I'm, I'm put in the mind of, and, and we've talked about this briefly, I, I know some of my uh, preferences when it comes to like animated movies. Like I really appreciate some of the DC animated movies and yeah. other ones I don't. And I, I, I'm kind of put in, the, in that mindset where it's like, Sometimes the artistic style can remove me from from a story, and in this case, the artistic style, if anything, it helps me appreciate the story. But it is separate from the story. Worth uh, I'm going to use the word remarkable. I, I mean worth remark, like worth talking about. Yes, um, yes. And and I, I'm kind of I, I feel that same way about some other things. So I, I can't say that I that I it's never happened to me before. But I I, I get where you're coming. 
Sure. I, I mean, to to get on that same topic, um, you know, one of the scenes in this movie, I think it's the uh, second, I believe it's the second time when um, Coraline goes into the other world, um, the, the garden scene, when she goes into the garden and the garden is growing as she's in it and, you know, she's taken on the ride by the other father and the garden is, is kind of growing as, as it's following and the, the camera pans out to reveal the garden has created Coraline's face. That's one of the most visually stimulating things I've ever seen. Like, like I, I, I love looking at all those col- The color palette is imaginative. The, the creation of just every step of the way of making all these flowers and making all these colors and, and designing these things and in such a way to move the camera frame by frame to capture the stop-motion creations frame by frame is just... Is, I mean, this might be the only time I ever say this. This takes me out of the movie in a good way. Like, there's a point where there's a few moments when I'm watching Coraline and I'm just looking at things and I'm so in awe that I'm not hearing anything. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I see where you're coming from. Um, That actually puts me a a little bit in the mind of Enter the Spider-Verse, if you remember that. Sure, sure. It's it's one that, like, artistically, there were things in that movie that were, like, visually very interesting. Yes, yes. And uh, and maybe at times distracting. I'm glad you say that because that was my big problem with Enter the Spider-Verse is that it felt like the movie was, was had ADHD. Like, it was so fast and so punching me in the face with things, I never had a moment to calm down and look at them. Where Coraline lets me breathe on the beauty of the, the dragon snappers in the garden. And then it'll focus on these, you know, roses that the hummingbirds have to light up for three seconds. Where Enter the Spider-Verse, I was like, Jesus Christ, this is so good looking, but I, I, wanna, I wanna know what I'm looking at for more than half a second. <laughs> sure, and, and that, that kind of highlights some of the differences between me and you as movie watchers is I'm significantly more interested in the story than I am in the art, even if the art is really good. Sure. Um, and so, like, that's that's one of the things that I would have trimmed down some, is, like, the garden scene. If I, if I, the, the, the <laughs> thing I wouldn't have trimmed down of those three wonders is, is probably the, the last one that we haven't mentioned, the, the like, play one. Oh, sure. Because, like, there was enough going on in that. I was like, okay, they, like, this, the things they're communicating to me could be relevant story-wise or theme-wise or something like that. Oh, oh 100%, because, of course, you know, the, um, the two actresses, they're, they're performing the, um, uh, the siren song from Odysseus and that type of stuff, and then they go into the monologue from Hamlet when they get skinnier. But I have to say, I, like I've said before, I've seen this movie so many times. Like, I literally do not have a count of how many times I've seen this movie. There's a lot of stuff that I visually love in this movie that I will be enthralled in. I, to this day, will, do not fundamentally understand how they did the visuals of the set falling apart. You know in that actress scene when like, one of them's in the mermaid costume, one of them's in the clamshell, and, the, and like the sandbag breaks, the dog starts spinning around in the, uh, in the wheel, and we just get a fixed shot of the stage where everything's going wrong, and it looks like there's layers going in and out. There looks like you know, physical things are going up and down. It, I, I can't get over it. That's, that's what I'm saying is that no matter how many times I see it, that might be... An incomprehensible masterpiece, as far as I'm concerned. That, like, five seconds of the stage falling apart is the most visually enthralling thing I think I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, it's... Well, I guess what I have to say about that is that I'm happy for you that you get to appreciate it on that one. <laughs> go back and watch that scene. Everybody go back and watch that scene. <laughs> I, I will, and I, and I don't doubt that you're right, that, like, that it is an impressive uh, feat. I just I don't think I'll ever be taken aback by the art that way. That's it, fair. That's it. fair. Once again, like we said at the start of the uh, of the Henry Selick series on Patreon, there's a reason Ben is here for these episodes. 
because we both love art, but we love it in really different ways. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get to more scenes that I, I consider visually stunning uh, because that is probably the entire movie. Uh, but I guess that brings us to the concept of, well, it's a Henry Selleck movie. And if anybody's been listening to our Monkey Bone episode or the other two episodes in this discussion, Henry Selleck gets at themes. He gets at meanings of his movies and things like that. And that's one of the things that I really love about Henry Selleck. Now, I have to say, as steadfast as I've been on the other three Henry Selleck movies and with how steadfast I think their themes are, Coraline falls into a different category. For a long, long time, you know, when, when I saw this first in 2009 and I watched it a bunch in my undergrad, I felt one way about this movie. I think maybe a few years went by before I started revisiting it, things like that. Upon that revisit, I started getting wildly different thoughts about the meaning of this movie. So there's really kind of two main ones that I want to talk about. But before we talk about those, before we talk about what I think you got from it, I think one of the great things about this movie is it was accepted. This movie was a financial and critical success when it came out. Uh, actually, at the I don't know if you know this, Ben, at the time of this release in early 2009, this was the third highest grossing animated movie ever. Animated. Not stop motion. Animated. Oh, wow, That's okay. how much money this movie made. And so people respected it. And it's really, really cool. I love every time I think about Coraline, you can go on Reddit, you can go on forums, you can think about, like, what do these people say? What do these people think? That type of stuff. And I love that this has almost become like a living document of how you interpret it. And, of course, I want to talk about some of the things I've read online in my research that I don't really, you know, I didn't think of or didn't agree with or anything like that. But I guess the, the big thing that I want to start with is something that I wanted to know if you got. The first time I watched this and every subsequent time I've watched this, I got the sense that this was Henry Selleck making his version of Alice in Wonderland. And so... I, I don't think it's exactly a parallel to Alice in Wonderland. Of course, Alice does not have the ability to go back and forth between Wonderland, at least in, you know, one book of Lewis Carroll's stuff. But Coraline has the ability to transfer back and forth between, you know, the regular world and the, the other world. But I think there's so much about Alice in Wonderland going for this story with Henry Selleck's twist on it that I appreciate it so much. And I think we can both agree the the biggest aspect of this, the one that might give everybody the thing that goes, oh, yeah, when Coraline first talks to the cat, voiced by the great Keith David, oh, yeah, the, the cat is Cheshire Cat, exactly. And that's the thing that I think is the biggest vibe of Alice in Wonderland. Well, so what I was going to say is I, I didn't get Alice in Wonderland vibes from much else, but when, he, when she is interacting with the cat and he's, like, putting his head in the, the hole in the tree and coming out, yeah. you know, 10 feet away from the other hole in the other part of the tree. Yeah. I was definitely like, yeah, this is Cheshire Cat. Like, that's what we're going to yes. do. Yes, yeah. I think that's the most obvious, of course. But no, if you if you dive into it, and I'm, I don't know if Ben is, I don't know if you've watched the Disney Alice in Wonderland from the 50s. I don't know if you've read any of the Alice in Wonderland books, but there's a lot of actual really interesting parallels between these two. And I think the, um, the other surface level one, you know, other than the Cheshire Cat, uh, the other surface level thing is when she has to play a game with the other mother to win her freedom. That That's a very, very reminiscent thing of Alice in Wonderland, whether it be the caucus race or whether it be playing croquet with the Red Queen. But I think the thing that gives me, as I've watched this so many times, the more of the Alice in Wonderland vibes is that we have a character that finds a new world and starts by questioning the unquestionable. She starts to accept it, have some issues... 
and then really start to learn to play by its rules. And that's kind of like the third act, is playing by the rules of challenging the, the beldum to a game. But at the beginning, she goes into this world, it's fantastical, she just kind of accepts it, and slowly she starts to realize that there are things that are different from what she knows. And I think the line that encapsulates this perfectly, one of my favorite lines in the movie, when, when Alice, or in our story, Coraline, questions the unquestionable, and she says to the cat, well, you're just a cat, how can you talk? And the cat's response is, I just can. You must be the other cat. No. I'm not the other anything. I'm me. Um, I can see you don't have button eyes, but if you're the same cat, how can you talk? I just can. Cats don't talk at home. No? Nope. Well, you're clearly the expert on these things. After all, I'm just a big fat wusspuss. That, that is literally the impetus, the beginning of the story, or maybe the first three stories of the Alice in Wonderland books, where every time Alice encounters something new, she goes, how can this be? And the creatures go, what? Like, what are you asking us? Like, what do you mean? Like, are you, are you fundamentally questioning our existence? It's the equivalent in a different world, you know, compared to ours. If we went to a, you know, McDonald's and we went to a drive-thru and they asked us for an order through the, the, the headphones or the speaker and we went, how are you talking to me? It's like, People are going to look at you like you're a crazy person. And I, I love that she has to learn, Coraline and Alice have to learn the rules of this world. And I wanted to mention that line about the cat saying, why can you talk? I just can. Was this a line that stood out to you? This is another line I thought, well, I was like, man, Ben's going to have a field day hating this line. Because that if you don't think about that line, it comes across as dumb. <laughs> no, I actually love that line. Nice, I, nice. I, I, I thought that that was... Um... It was a it was a nice way of, of kind of communicating that they were in a different reality, and that reality is to be accepted as it is. Yes, like like I said, questioning the unquestionable to use that Lewis Carroll line because of course, as Ben and I know, nothing is unquestionable. Nothing prevents you from asking a question. Unquestionable in the sense of there's no reason to ask that question. Right. Okay, no, I'm actually really happy to hear that because that that's one of the lines from the movie where I'm like, oh god, like I'm like if you don't if you're not keyed into what this movie's going for, and you know somebody asks, why can a cat talk? I just can. Like I could imagine adults taking their kids to see this movie in 2009 and, and like groaning at that line, you know? I I mean maybe I, I I'm not like I guess the, the line was so impactful on me I hadn't even considered it as a line that you could not interpret. Okay, okay. Because it, it definitely to me comes as like. This is just, like, the, the cat doesn't know enough about the world to explain why it can talk. Like, why would it? Yeah. Like, yeah. As, far, as far as its experience goes, it can't talk outside, but it can talk inside. That's all it knows. That's a really good point, because, you know, when if you're if you're keyed into this movie, which I, I think, you know, clearly I am, and I'm getting the sense wonderfully that you were as well, which is so cool, because I fucking love this movie, but... The, before that line of the cat, you know, we get the thing of before the cat ever talks, Coraline sees the cat and she's like, oh, you're my my friend in the other world, the YB that can talk a lot. You know, he has a cat just like you. You must be the other cat. And the cat's response is, I'm nothing other. I'm me. And it's just like, oh, shit. OK, we've just recontextualized the entire framework of what this discussion with this animal is going to be, because early on in the movie, the opening scene of the movie, when Coraline is using the dowsing rod to find the well, she encounters the cat and she talks to the cat. And now when the cat talks back to her, it's like, wow, it's a, it's a twist worth having. 
I mean, you're also clued in because the cat does not have butt knives and everything else does. Well, of course, of course, yes. Uh, yes. Except maybe the mice. Do the mice have butt knives? Uh, the mice. I know the dogs do. Yeah, the in the in the the, the I'm pretty sure the mice have button eyes because the mice that get killed by the cat when they turn into sand have button eyes. Okay. So so something else. Uh, since since we're here, I, I figure I'll talk about it now with the dousing rod or the, yeah the dousing rod. Yes. Scene with Wybie, water um, witches. <laughs> yes, water witches. Uh, he he reveals his name is Wybie. Like, why were you born? Yep. Which is upsetting. Oh. Uh, just oh. kind of in general. But then he says, "What were you saddled with?" And and he's talking about her name. And she's like, "I wasn't saddled with anything. I'm Coraline." Um, but this is before we've met her parents. Mm-hmm. And then and then like immediately after that we meet her parents and and like. It just, as clear as day to me, it was like the answer to what she was saddled with was her fucking parents. Yes, the parents are huge. Of course, I mean, the parents are the, the main focal point of Coraline's story. The whole, the, the thing of the other mother in the world, and I'm, I'm sure we're going to get to that. But I'm, I'm glad you brought up, even the first time I saw this, to this day. And of course, now, when I saw this in 2009, now we're in 2021. It's been so many years since I've had to think about this. Calling somebody Wyborn... And then calling them "Why were you born?" that that fundamentally upsets me. I think, <laughs> like that might uh, yeah, be the most fucked. horrifying part of this movie. <laughs> yeah, it, it's 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 fucked. Uh, and you know, I'm not. It, yeah, it, it, it was emotionally upsetting, definitely. Because and also because why why be? I want to call him why be. I don't want to call him why born. Why born has baggage for me. Why be is like a positive in this story. He he oh, might yeah. not always be completely positive. He might be neutral in the scene when he doesn't, you know, when he wants the doll back and Coraline's expressing everything that happened to her. But he's he's kind of like the the sidekick, if any. Well, the, probably he's the second sidekick. The cat's the first sidekick. He's the one that we want to help Coraline and to give him that much baggage immediately at the beginning of the movie that he always has to go back to his grandma. That you know, he, why were you born? It's it's fundamentally upsetting to me. <laughs> It's a little bit interesting that the grandma who has this whole backstory of having a twin that disappeared because of, uh, what are you calling it, the Beldam, the other mother? Yeah, the Beldam. Yeah. A great way to remember, of course, is so the the other mother is called, well, the ghost children call her the Beldam, a Beldam, Beldam, whatever. I think they even switch up pronunciations in the movie, which is really interesting. But, of course, Beldam, you think about it, Beldam, beautiful lady, it actually relates to uh, La Belle Dame sans, sans Merci, which is a, a short poem from like the 1800s that is very, very similar to the Coraline story. Okay. Neat. Um, so Belle Dame took Wybie's grandmother's twin. Yes. It, I, I find it very strange that if he lived with his grandmother, you know, it, and obviously we're not informed whether it's true or not that she named him Wybie, but I find it difficult to believe that she would continue to call him Wybie. When it seems like her backstory would would lean her towards, like giving a significant shit about her family. Sure, sure. No, I'm, um, I'm with you there. Yeah. Alternatively, we live in the universe where where her backstory is more that she refuses to become attached to her family because they might just disappear, and so yeah. So maybe YB is like, why were you born? Like, why did you have to come into my life so that I could? Yeah. No, no, you bring up a really good point because on that same topic, you know, we already mentioned that um, Coraline is based off of Neil Gaiman's novella, Coraline. Um, the novella is short. When, when Henry Selleck adapted it 
because he wrote the script, the screenplay for this movie, he added a lot of things. YB is not a character in the book. YB is entirely a Henry Selleck creation. Okay. I think that adds a lot to what you were saying about the fact that we don't really understand the relationship of the grandmother and YB or even their relationship to the, the Bell Dam. And, and that's one of the things that I've, I've always had questions about. And that's kind of one of the things that I, I love this movie for is that I might start to get really deep into what I think the themes and the meanings of this movie is. And, and honestly, my thoughts on this movie are the equivalent of the carpet that Coraline steps on in the beginning of the film. When she puts down one bump in the carpet, two more pop up. And, and I kind of love the fact that every time I try and fit all these puzzle pieces together... It doesn't fit completely, and I have another thing popping out. And then the one time I try my hardest to jump on it and flatten the carpet out, I have another problem with turning off all the goddamn lights in the house. It, it's, it's kind of like this weird amalgamation of a living document, like I said earlier, that so many people get so many different interpretations of it. Sure. I guess I'm a little uh, curious. What, what do you think of... Do you think the line, like, what, do you, what were you saddled with? Like, do you think that that was supposed to be foreshadowing that what she was saddled with was something other than her name. I've started to think that more uh, with my second interpretation of the movie, probably the one that I, uh, I, I latch on to more now recently. And, and I guess maybe just to go in chronological order, uh, like I said, you know, there was like a point in time I watched this movie a bunch, took a break, watched this movie a bunch again, and I have very different thoughts about this movie in both situations. The first one that I got, which I mentioned in our uh, Monkey Bone episode, I, for a long, long time, when I first watched this movie and rewatched it a bunch of times in, like, the first three years since it came out, I took this movie as saying, you know, let's ask the question, how much of yourself are you willing to change to potentially be happy? And I think that's a really important distinction. Not to be happy, to potentially be happy. And I, I got a lot of the sense of, you know... Coraline is unhappy with her parents. You know, they're ignoring her. Well, they're not fully ignoring her, but they're, they want, you know, to make sure she has her own agency while they have their own agency. It's kind of like that, you know, you have an annoying, needy kid type of thing. And she is immediately drawn to the other mother and the other world with constant attention because all of those things we see are about Coraline, how good she is. She becomes infatuated with going back to the other world. She becomes infatuated even going back there, not during when she's sleeping, but in the middle of the day when her mother goes to the grocery store. She's like, well, I'm going to go back into the other world. I'm going to have fun. And, and I think that has a lot of meaning in the sense that, you know, she's giving up time in her actual life for this new one. So she's clearly okay with giving up this non-tangible resource of time for happiness. But then as soon as the other mother wants to say to her, oh, sew buttons into your eyeballs, she's not okay with giving up a tangible resource. And I think that's something that everybody can relate to, is that when you're looking for happiness, when you're looking for gratification, you are more comfortable giving up something that you can't physically measure or easily physical, physically measure than something that actually takes something away from you. And so I started to get the sense that, oh, this movie is, that's what it's saying, is like, if Coraline wants happiness, how much of a compromise is she willing to make? And I think that then that is amplified by the last act of the movie, when she gambles her life away to the other mother for her parents, where now she is saying, well, I'll gamble the thing I wasn't willing to give away before by choosing to sew buttons into my eyeballs, just for the chance of getting back to where I was originally. And I think that this, the movie encapsulates this perfectly with the line, the dialogue between her and the cat, where she says, how can you walk from something and then come towards it? 
And the cat says, well, you walk around the world. And she goes, small world. That, to me, is – I took that for so many years to be that's the point of the movie, that if you are unhappy with where you are, if you walk too fast orthogonally away from where you are, you're going to end up wanting where you were back. You're going to be right there at the threshold, might not be able to cross that threshold back into it. I, so that, that, that might have been a lot of throw at you. That was my kind of first thought, the, the question of you know, are, how much of you, are you willing to change yourself to be potentially happy? Any, what are your thoughts on that, Ben? As you said, it, it is a, a lot to try to digest right now. but I, It's one of I those mean, episodes. <laughs> uh, I'm intrigued by, by the, uh, the idea of you know, the, the comparison or rather the bringing back to that scene where she's walking away from, from the other house sure. and, and ends up walking back at it and I, I hadn't considered that scene as deeply but how can you walk away from something and end up walking back to it you walk around the world that, that, there's like a million things that popped into my mind that, the, the biggest one being uh, actually a verse from the bible or, or a, a, at least a phrase that's in the bible which is if your eye offends you pluck it out which I think fundamentally is a statement about changing the way you view the world Sure. Um, so I guess I'm kind of uh, comparing or, or coming up with, with maybe this idea of walking around the world is kind of that same idea of, like, developing a new viewpoint of the world. Ah! Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you bring that up because I think that's an actually really close tie-in to um, last week's episode, James and Giant Peach, the taking something from a different perspective, which, of course, Ben remembers all about. But no, I mean, I, I think, you know, I'm with exactly what you're saying, is that there's there's this this change of perspective that might teach you something about your past i mean when i watch Coraline, you know i watched it a lot before this happened and i've watched it a lot since it happened one of the big things which i I think ben and i've talked about off mic many years ago is that when i moved from ohio you know i moved to montreal for a summer and then i moved to colorado and there was that point in montreal when i was like oh jesus christ i'm moving away from everybody i know like i'm moving away from all my friends i'm moving away from ben i'm moving away from the three-hour drive two and a half because I'm a, I'm a maniac when I drive, to my friends in Pittsburgh. I, I felt like I went, I walked so far away from my life that I was just right back there wanting it again, that type of thing. And that's where that feeling really touched me, you know, on Coraline, in the sense that, you know, if you move too fast, too perpendicular, orthogonal, the word I used before, too quickly, you're going to want that back. And I, I feel that's what Coraline's going through. Is She's saying, you know, I might have had this establishment with my parents, and it might not have been the worst, but now that I'm realizing that the other mother wants to fundamentally change who I am and eat me, we'll talk about the other mother eating, what that means a little later on, I think, then maybe I should have not given up that, that loss. It's almost like a, a feeling of, you know, I've, I've been happy with instant gratification for a little bit of time, but now that it's taken its toll on me, I'm realizing the damage that getting instant gratification has done to me, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I, again, like you're just putting ideas in my head or making ideas <laughs> pop into my head from the ether or whatever. That's what I, I love like, to I, do, Ben. <laughs> I'm getting like drug addiction vibes from this. Oh yes. Absolutely. A hundred percent. I, that was a, that's always been a big thought of me is, you know, when she goes through that tunnel into the other world, is that her, you know, because we see one of the best pieces of animation in this film is when she looks behind that small door and you get to see that that tunnel just expand, you know? Isn't yeah. that just the uh, the vein dilating and being filled with the drug that you love oh so much? Whether it be heroin, whether it be instant gratification, whether it be a better family, it's just making you feel something faster 
and and it's it's just oh it's so immaculately imagerized in that scene. Yeah, and even further though, like she sleeps it off. Yes, yes. In another world, and she she thinks it was it a dream. She thinks it was a dream. Yes. And like sleeping it off is what we say to drunk people. Like go sleep it off. Like we say so anyway, that's so there's that. Uh then also I mean my thoughts about about the individual and having to get things up for happiness. I I have some some thoughts about they're a little disjointed and maybe not cohesive or coherent uh, as they are, but I'll, I'll try to, to blabber some of them out and see if anything comes from it. <laughs> um, at some point in your life, you are you are nothing but a ball of potential. Yes. Um, you you can be anything, but if you live your entire life as somebody who can be anything, you will always be nothing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if you live that way, you will never be happy. But by the same by the same measure, when you give up all of the other potentialities to choose one, and this is this, I mean, you can go into like Heisenberg's, this, this Heisenberg cat, right? No, that's the uncertainty principle. Unc- yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Theory of uncertainty, principle of uncertainty, absolutely. Uh, um, what you said also made me think of um, opportunity cost. Nothing is free. You have the cost of giving up what you did not do. Yeah. Right. So. So, like, you never, what I was getting is you never really know what you are until you decide, but once you've decided, you've given something up. And, and you have to give something up. Because, because, like I said, you'll never be happy if you don't decide. And, and the question of how much are you willing to give up? Well, the answer is 99% of what you could have been, mm-hmm. or more, because you could have been anything, but you have to be something. And, and I, it's just an intriguing question to think of, like, how much would you give up? And then also to ask that question of a child, because a child is, at least in, in the way that we think of children in America, a child is somebody who should have to give up almost nothing. And, and I don't know, maybe, maybe Rob sees this different because of his sordid past, living <laughs> on the, in the alleys and the streets and whatever. But <laughs> the children are, are kind of, at least in our society at, at large, they're like revered in a way. Um, yeah. and, and they are to be... Main, their innocence is to be maintained as long as possible and that kind of thing. Um, so, so children are, are exactly the kind of people who we don't ask to give up anything. And they're, and she's being asked to give up her, her entire life mm-hmm. to, to make this change. And so it's, that's why I said it's kind of rambling, not necessarily cohesive or, or cogent. But I, what I'm thinking about is, is, is this idea of like transitioning into adulthood and how much it means to give up those things. But also, I mean, and this is where maybe it falls apart in terms of how it connects to this movie. Um, you, you give up everything else to be one thing yeah. so that you can be that one thing long enough to eventually get freedom back in a meaningful way. Whereas yeah. Yeah. your youth have freedom in like a, in kind of a vacuous way. You have, you have freedom because it's, well, nothing else has ever been thrust upon you. Whereas in your, in your older life, if you, if you do things, right and maybe end up lucky um you end up with a freedom that actually means something because you've seen the other side of it you know what it's taken to limit yourself and now you've created a, the you know, two different worlds one where you've given things up and and that's who you are in that world and then the other world where where after five o'clock if if you work a nine to five after five o'clock you're you're whoever you want to be and and you can afford to be that person because you've made those sacrifices there's something really interesting in that idea that you've just presented. You know, one one to get at the fact that I think everybody can agree with. 
not not just you and I. I think you know anybody who's who's lived through this or experienced it with a with a child or growing up. When you choose what your life is going, the path your life is going to be down, you have chosen something of measure zero, and you are giving up something of measure one. You are choosing the improbable. Yeah. And I think that then this gets really into exactly what we were saying about Coraline in the sense of when she has realized that what she has is of measure zero, her parents, you know, ignoring her or, or treating her the way they do, you know, she might see that as measure zero in the sense of, you know, zero worth or anything like that. Giving that up for just constant attention and good food and sweets, that's also measure zero. Yeah, so... I don't know. I, I'm I'm hesitant to call to call the latter measure zero because I I, I as you described the, her situation as it was as measure zero, I kind of began to think of of something as measure zero being like well, and, and of course Rob from our mathematics background he knows that we we're very much on the same page about what measure means. Sure. But in in the sense of measure zero, like I'm thinking of of the smallest set of measure zero. Well, not the smallest, the second smallest, the set that contains one point. Something that's measure zero is finite and grounded. Yeah, yeah. And and in grounding, it actually adopts realism. And in being real, it is actually meaningful. Whereas something that is infinite, yes, there's so much more you can do in it. You have freedom, but when you have infinite freedom, you don't have realism. You don't have grounded Miss, you don't have meaning and you don't have story. I think that's and what I I'm think... getting at is that the, if, if Coraline had chosen to stay in the other world and, you know, have all the food and the care and attention she wants, that is still measure zero. She's not going to be happy. She's going to be fed off by the bed, the beldum. And, and she might not realize that, of course. Well, but... and, and it's, I feel like that's, I, I see where you're coming from in, in that, it, in this sense that, that measure zero represents having zero actual value. Yes, yes. But and that, that, that might be like the third the third act twist of the movie would be the reveal that the other world is of measure zero. <laughs> right. The, the first world is of measure zero in terms of possibility. The second world the is second of world measure zero changes the measure. The second yeah. world changes the measure. Oh, geez, okay, Ben, ben and I are going to make Cor- remake Coraline and make it inaccessible to many people. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a math movie. <laughs> no, but I think you just hit the nail on the head. It's a, this, the other world changes the measure. Absolutely. Yeah, something that looks valuable in the eyes of the second world. Oh, dude, no, this is this is fucking great. Coraline views her life in the first world, the original world, as measure zero. When she goes into the other world, she's appraising that with this original measure. And she has to realize through the events of the movie, through learning the topology of the second world, that that first measure does not apply. It's not a measure. Jesus Christ, Ben, we need to write a, a scene where the cutie patootie Coraline realizes that the original measure in the other world doesn't follow the triangle property or something like that. <laughs> no, but then, you know what I'm saying? That's amazing. I think that's exactly what, what we're both getting at is that she's using the wrong metric for the other world, and until she realizes what metric she needs to use, she thinks it's amazing. Yes, yeah, 100%. And and that she's uh, applying the metric from the first world to the second world and seeing it as one thing and, and not... But she's not she's not doing the same in reverse. Like She's not changing the yeah. way she's viewing the... Yeah, so, so yeah, I think we're on the same page. It's, it's a very... It's funny to put it in these terms, but she's realizing the diagram doesn't commute and it's breaking her fucking No, mind. absolutely. I, you, you just said it in a great way. I was thinking that, you know, when she starts in the first act of this movie going between these worlds, she thinks it's an isomorphism when it is not. <laughs> That's right. That's right. The diagram is not commute. 
Uh, and for this all might, of our... This might have been everything I've wanted for this episode, is to make it this more confusing <laughs> for what I think is one of the greatest movies of all time. <laughs> uh, and I, I think that, you know, if, if we went back to our math predecessors, they would be proud of us for... Uh, even though I've abandoned math altogether and you've abandoned theoretical math for teaching. I, th- I think that they would be uh, they would uh, approve of this. Okay, real quick tangent, because you just put a great thought in my head. How would you describe a podcast to Isaac Avicii? <laughs> be like, it's it's the radio, but fixed, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, like <laughs> could you imagine having to explain a podcast to Isaac Avicii? <laughs> I, I, think, I don't think it would be too bad. Like, Isaac Avicii, do you know what a talk show is? And then he would say no, and that <laughs> would make things a lot harder. So, yeah, maybe it would be kind of rough. Isaac Avicii, if you ever hear this, we love you. Absolutely. Oh, my God. I If Isaac Avicii is listening to this, please comment down below and say, that is absurd. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, so with, with that, with, uh, you threw that in my head. It would be like, what would it be like to tell our old math teachers about a, what a podcast is? What a long-form fucking two-hour-plus podcast is? But no, that's great. No, I think you're, you're... It's like a math talk, but about something fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you're right in everything you're saying and all these terms we've reached. That's, that is a lot of what Coraline is going through. And, you know, th- this kind of, you know, uh, dealing with the, the how much of, are you, of yourself are you willing to change to potentially be happy? That was kind of the question that I, I posed at the start. I, I think you've expanded on it well in the sense that it's also getting at, you know... The, the potentially part of that sentence deals with how you understand what it means to be happy. Whether you think it's a, a correlation, an isomorphism, whether you think it's one-to-one, you know, anything like that, you might not be right. And that's something that Coraline needs to learn throughout the events of this movie. And that, you know, leads to the, the whole third act and getting her parents back and stuff like that. God damn it, Rob. You might actually make me study math again because of this conversation. Um, <laughs> obviously, this, this, and I don't see how I didn't see it a second ago. This is obviously the grass is greener on the other side. Yeah, yeah. But in long form. And um, I'm reminded of... of <laughs> now, now when you say that, I'm kind of shocked you didn't get that. Remember, I, I already talked about how wonderfully amazing the other world garden is. And the regular yes. world garden is gray. <laughs> Anybody in the audience, in the cinema audience, who, who is familiar with Jordan Peterson will understand this when I say it. If the, gra- if, if the grass is greener on the other side, why don't you take care of your goddamn grass? Ah, okay. <laughs> That's, that might be a better way to think about it than I've thought about it in most recent times. My, my big response to the grass is always greener in, in maybe like the last year or, year or two years has been, the grass is always greener on the other side because you haven't been there to fuck it up. <laughs> Which, of that's, course, I think our cinema audience knows I'm a very, you know, nihilistic person in that sense. <laughs> but that's essentially the same statement. No, sure, sure, absolutely, uh, yeah. So, yeah, the that that's right. The So, yes, if, if the grass is greener on the other side, take care of your damn lawn. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and, um, and I, I definitely take that to mean... It, 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 this all comes back to the whole fucking biblical thing of if the world offends you, pluck it out. You pluck your, or if your eye offends you, pluck it out. Like if you are seeing something in your life that's fucked, fix it. Like fucking yes. fix it. Yes. Like fi- fix it by making your relationships with the people that are in your life better. And like that doesn't necessarily mean, but can mean removing people from your life. Exactly. And I think that's exactly what this this kind of whole first idea we've been talking about Coraline is, you know, that's what she needs to learn. She needs to learn that she doesn't need to replace everybody in her life. 
she needs to work on something to make sure these things are better. And that's that's why when I when I think about this whole concept of Coraline, the last scene is so immaculate. There, there's a reason that Henry Selick, I think, shoots the entire last scene from Coraline's POV when she's giving the pink lemonade to all the other guests at the garden party, is that she's finally seeing and realizing that what she has... It might not be good in, a, in an objective sense, but she can make it good because she can interact with them in a way that makes it meaningful. Where in the beginning of the movie, you know, she's the one who's like, Dad, I want to squeak a door behind you. Why isn't that making you happy? And it comes across as a little childish, but I think that's the point, that she has that growth between the first scene and the last scene of the movie. Right. Well, and then, I mean, and there's also the overtones of neglect in this movie which yes well uh, that now when you say that ben like i said this whole first discussion which has been great i'm so so i'm so fucking ecstatic that we got to use math terms in Coraline. this is great um this this is like you know making Coraline adventure time it's fantastic isomorphic you know we need a Coraline to say that at one point <laughs> but this is the thing this whole idea that we've talked about so far that was what I thought this movie was about for maybe the first, you know, four or five years after I had seen it. In the last maybe also three, four years of watching this, I've kind of gotten something entirely different from this movie. Here's the other theme that I want to throw at you, Ben. Here's the other meaning. And and I don't know, maybe this is something our conversation will lead us to if they overlap or anything like that, but I've kind of seen them as almost separate in my head. In the last few times that I've watched this movie and for this recording kind of amplified by something else I want to talk about, I've started to see Coraline as an allegory for a daughter dealing with a manipulative, controlling, abusive mother. So just to, to lay this out, you know, so we can talk about it, the, the abuse of, of a mother, of a of controlling mother, usually comes out in the form of being two-faced, you know, when a parent will act two different ways based on, you know, who they're with. Where out, when they're out in public with a child, they'll act one way. When they're behind closed doors, they'll act another way. And I kind of see the, the other mother embodying this. The, the beldam as almost some abstract concept of manipulation dealing with the, the two-facedness of, you know, I'm going to shower my daughter with affection and, and treats and food and things like that, but as soon as things seem to not be going my way, I'm going to become much more evil and gaslighting and manipulative. I think that the other mother represents both of these sides. I think that there's another layer to the original mother, which we might get to in a little bit, but I think that this has become more apparent to me upon rewatching this movie because of the things that talk about the other mother eating the children. This is both said by the cat, and this is also said by the ghost children that Coraline encounters in the mirror world, realm, whatever the hell that is. And, you know, the, the ghost children say something along the lines of, you know, they, um, they, they, we, she showered us with affection and gifts, and we wanted more. We let them, we let her sew buttons into our eyes, and because we wanted more, and she ate our lives away. And even the cat says the thing about, you know, she's like, you know, maybe the mother just wants something to eat. And Coraline says, to eat? She's like, I don't taste good, you know? And the cat says, I don't know, do you? And something's wrong. Shouldn't the old well be here? Nothing out here. It's the empty part of this world. She only made what she knew would impress you. But why? Why does she want me? She wants something to love, I think. Something that isn't her. Or maybe 
She just loves something to eat. Eat? That's ridiculous. Mothers don't eat daughters. I don't know. How do you taste? <laughs> I, I, I get this, this hardcore sense that there is some level of representation of an abusive mother towards Coraline in this movie. And Coraline is living under the umbrella, the shadow of this abusive mother that's really controlling her entire life. I, just, just that. What do you think about that, Ben, as a, as a, as a different take on this movie? Uh, well, I'm reminded, of, of course, of the devouring mother type, which is uh, like the witch in Hansel and Gretel, fatten you up to eat you kind of thing. Sure. Uh, that's the, the this story, what, what am I trying to say? The fairy tale description of the mother who uh, may, may be abusive, but typically the abuse is, is not super obvious. It's like controlling, protective... Um, yeah, we're we're smothering. we're talking about a yeah smothering is a great word. We're talking about right here abuse in the fir- form of control manipulation. Like I don't think we're talking physical abuse. Yes, yeah. So it's it's uh, abuse that's maybe a little harder to see from the outside, but it essentially uh, it, the way that this abuse ends up when when done in real life is is creating adults who are not fully adults because the mother never lets them grow up. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I'm so glad you say that because they're not fully adults because these abusive mothers have emotionally trapped those children. Yes, yeah, and it, it could be, uh, you know, there's there are plenty of different ways this comes about. One of one of the common ones is uh, with a mother who either got divorced really early on or is otherwise really lonely. Maybe maybe the dad died, and sure. like you have this like it's, it's like kind of the empty nest syndrome attaining to its extreme. Uh, we saw it in Run. It was... Uh, yes! Thank you, Ben! This is... I'm so glad you said it. I was like, how long is it going to take Ben to say Run? Because honestly, we, in this light, isn't this movie the best double feature with Run? <laughs> 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 like, you watch the surface-level abusive mother of Run, and then you watch the subsurface meta-narrative abuse in this movie? <laughs> yeah, I mean, if... if I, I haven't quite... I wouldn't say I'm quite on board with you that I agree that that's happening in this movie, uh, but that is that is what it is brought to mind when, when you talk about these things. Uh, of course, is this, but but the end result, what I was getting at is is the so so we have somebody who's like stunted. So that phrasing of like the mom eating them, what it really is implying is that the mom is eating their future. Absolutely. Yep. It's a it's a sense of of, of parasitic vicariousness or parasitic control. Absolutely. Yes, yeah, and it can be vicariousness, uh, uh, but I think a lot of the times it is more about that empty nest syndrome. And, no, and no, keeping... you're you're right. I I wanted to bring up parasitic vicariousness for the comparison of Run. Don't you think that Sarah Paulson wants her daughter to be smart and succeed, but just do it in her own home? Oh, um, because the because because uh, you know Kira Allen is smart. She's making a. 3D printer. She's soldering things. She's a genius. She's getting all A's in homeschool. I, I, I kind of think this might be the same type of abuse where it's like, you know, I want my daughter to succeed as long as I get to be there when she does it to an evil extent. And that's yeah. how I take the other mother when she's like, I want you to be here. I want you to be happy. I need you to be in my home and be happy while I'm right there behind your shoulder. Well, and definitely the vibe of like, 
I'm going to siphon off the positive things you experience yes. to power myself is, is really, uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of explicitly stated all the while. It's, it's never, I don't, okay. It's never explicitly stated, but the idea is definitely gotten that. Yeah. That, yeah. that there's some kind of siphoning happening. Now, uh, now that you've mentioned run, because I, I was like, I, I knew you were going to have to think of this because I was like, there's no way I can put this forward to Ben. He's not going to think of Run because you and I both think Run is an immaculate fucking movie. To say to get at something I said before, the two-faced aspect of the mother, of the abusive mother. You know that opening scene in Run. Why should I be upset about my daughter? She's smart. She's strong. She's this. She's that. I want her to have a life. Cut to I'm giving her pills to make her sick type of thing. That's the two-facedness sure. aspect that I think the other mother portrays in Coraline. The, I'm going to shower you with affection, but as soon as you want to have any of your own agency, I want to turn into a bug spider that can capture you in my web and control you. Yeah, it's, I mean, definitely. You're making a decent case. Uh, the, only, the only thing that I really have yet that kind of gives me reservation about accepting that as, like, I, I guess... Uh, what am I trying to say? Like an explanation that that fully encapsulates what we're getting at here is kind of how, how the movie ends, because the movie the movie ends with they're out in their garden and, and they're finally paying attention to their daughter. And, and a lot of the movie has has been in the physical world has been the the mom neglecting or not even wanting to pay attention to Coraline, which is which is kind of the antithesis of of the uh, devouring. Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. That's a. So this is part of the thing I had that was separate from Run because Run, of course, is this weird, wonderful, wonderfully weird thriller. I cannot say wonderful enough for Run. Um, I uh, Run is one of our Patreon episodes that has gotten bumped around for so many things. You know, uh, I don't know when it's coming out at this point, but oh when is it not out yet? No, I don't. I think it's been bumped around because we ended up doing Wrath of Man and Profile, and now it's like, oh, we're doing requests, and it's been bumped around. It's kind of like one of the things that I, I don't know if it's out yet or not, type of thing. But it's a great it's... movie. It's a great discussion. <laughs> yes, it is. Ben and I talk about um, uh, Pat the Mailman, Best Man, for a while. <laughs> In that episode. But one of the things, oh, apart from Run, I think is the ending, of course, as you just mentioned for Coraline, is that Coraline seems to be a little more um, happy with the, the regular mother and things like that. And I, I think this gets at what I was saying before, where the two-faced abusiveness from an abusive mother exists completely in the other world. I think that on this topic of, you know, we're, we're watching the story of a daughter dealing with an abusive mother, I think the regular world mother is the representation of how an outside viewer would see this this experience. As we, the audience, as anybody encountering them, you know, would, would view this thing. That we see that it's maybe it's a mother that's a little overworked or too busy to deal with her daughter, and the daughter being a little needy and childish at the same time. And the ending kind of, I think, is the blend of the, the best of both worlds, where the mother's not being abusive, she's not completely ignoring Coraline, but she's also not gaslighting or manipulating Coraline at the same time. I think the, the last scene is the blend of the other world and the regular world in the sense of all three perspectives. And the three perspectives are the outward manipulative mother, the inward manipulative mother, and the audience or outside perspective as we would see it. Just just because uh, the, the the other mother, the Beldam, the the very kind of blatant thing that they get, or at least that I get from that, is the devouring mother archetype. Sure. Um, 
the abuse that comes from the real world mother, which arguably is abusive, but it's it's not to the same degree. It's yeah. it's actually kind of the in the opposite direction of, of of neglect, which leads her daughter to have more agency, not less. Yeah, um, I'm having I'm having a tough time kind of bringing those two elements together. Uh, whereas, like maybe what I'm getting more of is like this is uh, it's like a story about a, about a girl who who lived one abusive experience and then was rescued by another abusive experience, quote unquote rescued, because obviously it turns out to be worse okay. than the first one. So, so I'm, I'm kind of back to that, that grass is, is greener thing where it's like the abusive experience, you know, maybe is better than the abusive experience. You don't, uh, no, you make a really good point there. I think also that what you just said, tying into the, um, idea of being emotionally trapped, even if your feelings change, you might be emotionally trapped. I don't know if you picked up on this since you, you know, you just said you watched this today. Um, I, I recommend everybody go back and watch this in the, the other world garden scene, which we've already highlighted about how visually stimulating it is. You know, the camera pans out and it turns out that the garden is in the shape of Coraline's face. In the real world, the very last shot of the movie, as the camera is panning away from the garden, it goes past the house into the cat. The garden is in the shape of the Bell Dam's face. I knew I, I saw that it was a face. I don't know if I recognize it as the Bell Dam's. From from the million times I've seen this, I, I take it to be the other mother's face, and I take that to be that you know, in the abusive sense, in the in the the um, theme of of abusive mother that we're talking about, Coraline might have had the agency to break free from some abuse, but she still has those traumatic scars living in her to some extent. I mean, and that's, that would not be misplaced as, as imagery in a movie like this. Like that's obviously a thing that happens in real life. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, whereas you survive the trauma, but the trauma, that's not, that's not the end of your experience. Exactly. It still leaves those scars. And also to get at something you said, you know, one of the things that I mentioned before is the, the abusive mother, uh, the the gaslighting tactic, you know, something we see in Run a lot, you know, the the whole idea of the um, you know, you're you're not you're just not thinking straight because you know I changed your medication and that type of stuff, you know. When Sarah Paulson gives gives the whole wonderful speech on the phone and we think she's talking to the pharmacist and it turns out she's just practicing to talk to the pharmacist, oh, yeah, probably the best true. fucking scene in the movie, probably the best fucking scene in the last ten years of cinema, like. That's there. There's such such gaslighting, and I love, absolutely love, in Coraline when Coraline comes back after she breaks free from the other mother in the middle of the day to get back to the real world, and she finds that her parents have vanished. There's the little the little tidbit of information we get where she sees groceries on the table and the groceries are rotten. That makes us think: How long has she been there? And I like to, th- I not like to think because it's a very depressing thing. But I chalk that up to this this idea of a a manipulative mother as saying like she's so angry with Coraline. And Coraline, the last time she saw her real mother, you know, I think the real mother said something like, "You want to go grocery shopping? You know, we could get something that you want." And Coraline says, "Like the gloves that I wanted. Like, why don't you get that when I wanted them?" And she's like, "Well, no, I'll make it up to you." And Coraline says, "You always say that." So they clearly have a fight. Coraline goes in the other world. She comes back out. Groceries on the table. So long that they're rotten. I think this is 
this is the embodiment of the after effects of gaslighting. Like, I could see an abusive mother go, well, you disobeyed me for the last time. Let's, how you, let's see how you do on your own. I'll buy you groceries. You cook them. You live your own life. And clearly, she's 11 years old. She's, a, she's a, the baddest bitch in the game, as we've said. But she might not know how to cook. She might not know how to use the oven. She not, might not know how to use these things and that things. That's the after effects of gaslighting. When saying, you know, oh, well, you see how well you do without me. And it sits so long. The mother has abandoned her for so long that the groceries have become rotten. That Coraline is now missing the abusive mother that she previously hated so strongly. And... I, I think it adds a lot of, of that, you know, meaning as the same thing we see in um, the, the inner workings, not explicitly, maybe explicitly in Coraline, inexplicitly, implicitly in Run, when, you know, Kira Allen has that feeling, well, my mother was so good to me, she would never hurt me, that type of thing. You know, you know what I'm saying with those comparisons? Uh, I'm not sure uh, what you mean by the, the after effects of gaslighting Oh, well, okay, um, you know, imagine that, you know, Coraline and her mother get in that fight about the gloves, and in the movie, Coraline decides to just go into the other world. If she did not go into the other world, imagine the sense that, you know, they have the fight about the gloves, and Coraline's mother, as an abusive mother, says, well, clearly you don't need me, I won't let you have me, I'm going to abandon you for weeks. See how you do on your own. It's gaslighting in the sense of, putting the child in a clearly disadvantaged position to make them realize how much they need you. Let's see, gaslighting, as I'm familiar with it, is is the um, essentially lying to somebody and telling them that what did happen did not happen. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, yes, you might be correct. I might not be using gaslighting as the cor- completely correct term. I might okay. be thinking of gaslighting because Sarah Paulson's character is the master gaslighter in Run. Um, where abandoning your child to force them into your viewpoint might not be gaslighting, but I, I felt it was similar enough. You are okay. I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah you're you're putting your child into such a position that you are you know they're going to fail to coerce a certain feeling from them. Yeah, yeah, and, and so yeah, coercion. I'm definitely on, on board with. Yeah, so okay, that that's that was the disconnect for me. Okay, this, yeah. this gaslighting is. Uh, for the cinema audience, I'm sure we're all already. Guessing. I know. I I have to remember every every now and then that I'm talking to Ben, and Ben is a uh, a a smart person. <laughs> I uh, I'm actually not looking at the screen. I hope you used air quotes. Um, I'm I'm a person. I got I know some things. Uh, but maybe maybe like, smart smart person. S M O R T. You know. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so the the term gaslighting, like I said, uh, is for the cinema audience. Yeah, ga- gaslighting in the sense of run, abandoning, or or forcing an event on a child you know they'll fail at in Coraline. Because honestly, I uh, with the with the first take we took on this, the um, you know, like I said, how much of yourself are you willing to change to potentially be happy? I don't think the rotting groceries falls into that category at all. I don't think there's any explanation of how rotting groceries would match my thematic. Th- uh, ideas in that first take. I think in the second take of the um, the abusive mother, that makes perfect sense. That Coraline has been left to relegate for herself by the mother, knowing that she'll fail. I see where you're coming from, but I don't think the story supports it. And uh, I don't think the story supports it because whenever we next see the the mother and father, they do not know that they have been gone for a significant portion of time. They do not know that they were missing. And as far as we can tell. They have just come back from their their 
interaction with whatever sword is they, they were for. They, yeah. So the, the versions of the parents that don't know this are the versions of the parents that Coraline wants back. Not the Beldum, not the one who's manipulating yes. her. Oh, okay, so you're saying that the, the Beldum... This goes back to what I was saying about how the Beldum represents the true... Uh, in, in some sense, I'm saying the Beldum represents the two faces of the true mother. The mother that comes back is the one that we see as a viewer. And th this is where it becomes really convoluted in the sense that there's three versions of the mother. The real mother, I think, is the Beldum. The mother that we see is the mother that we would see if we were interacting with these people as their neighbors or as casual uh, personalities. Because you're right, you're right. They don't know what's going on. They say, and and Coraline is like, "What are you talking about? You were gone for so long. Look at the snow on your on your jackets." And the snow melts immediately. Yeah. So when you okay, so I, I think maybe I have a little bit of confusion about what you mean. I so the Beldum, the 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 version of the Beldum that actually looks like the mom. Are you saying that that's the one that people see from the outside? I th no, I think that's the real mother. I think I think the Beldum that. That looks like the real mom is the real mother that Coraline appreciates. I think the Beldum as a ghoulish, long-limbed ghost is the mother that Coraline hates. And I think the mother that exists in the rest of the movie with the neck brace is the one that we would see if we were viewing this from an outsider perspective without the background on Coraline. So that's the part where I, where I maybe disagree with you some. Because okay. the... The mother that we see from that, that you're saying we would see from the outside is the one that's neglecting. She's the one that doesn't seem to care that much about her daughter. Well, that that's where I want to push back on the sense that you know when they go out to buy uniforms or they go out to drop the dad off at uh, his his publishing meeting. I think that if you or I, Ben, if anybody, maybe not anybody, but a lot of people, if you are just out and about in town, if you're just a casual viewer of this this familial you know interaction, you'd see a little girl sliding around on a stool, wanting to buy gloves, and the mother going, no, we need to buy your school uniform. We as viewers would not think of that as anything crazy or weird. We would be like, yeah, they got a needy kid who's young, and it might be fun. It's the same thing if you go to a grocery store and you see a mom going, no, you can't have that candy. You don't think that mom's abusive. You don't think no, that no. mom's manipulative. That's, no, that's the, the perspective I take on the regular mother. Okay, so the, the thing that I'm talking about is, is the first... Uh, interaction we have with the regular mother is one where where Coraline, you know, they, they've just moved into this house. Coraline wants some kind yep. of attention, and the mother's just like, leave me alone, I'm working. And then the dad does the same, it's just leave me alone, I'm working. One of, of the one of the funniest lines in the movie when Coraline says, hey mom, I went out exploring today. Uh-huh. I might have fell down a well and died. That's nice. <laughs> yeah. So... I almost fell down a well yesterday, mom. Uh-huh. I would have died. That's nice. Hmm. So can I go out? I think it's perfect weather for gardening. So that that's where that's where my disagreement comes from is is that that mother is clearly not that hyper focused on her daughter the way that I would expect uh, the devouring mother to be. But 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 isn't that how we would see it from an outsider perspective? I don't think so. I cause like really Ron, okay. Uh, we wouldn't, we wouldn't, I don't think that we would see it from, from the point of, like, I don't think that it would go so far as to think, like, that mother's neglecting her daughter. No, I think no, we, exactly. We, think, we think it's normal. We, we're the ones who see that and go, oh, just another mother, a tired mother trying to work a job to support her kid, and that kid's being an annoying little cunt, you know? That well, no, what I'm, what I'm getting at is I think that the devouring mother from the outside would look responsive to her kid. 
Like she, from the outside, you would think like that is a mother that is responsive ah, to her child. Ah, that see that is where I think the 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 blend of what I'm saying comes into play. When the when they're behind closed doors, you get the evil bell beldum. When they are in full effect of other people, you have the showering with affection, saying like you're. I think what you're saying is that you know, oh, this is my daughter. She's so important. Everything like that. When when the evil mother doesn't care about who she's talking to, the daughter might not exist. May may as well not exist. I mean, that we're we're getting really into the, the psychology of things right now. Absolutely, but yes. uh, but, but that's, I, that's how I kind of took it is the, in the sense that it's like oh if if she's controlling the daughter and if the mother has to interact with somebody who whose focus is not on the daughter, the daughter does not exist, and that's what Coraline exists as does not exist as for most of the movie in those interactions. She's, she's ignored. I, I so, think also to, to, to point at this, not to, once again, I'm sorry, I'm cut you off, Ben. <laughs> I can do the magic of editing, but you know, I've just interrupted Ben for the third time. I think is the thing that, you know, in that opening scene, and this is going to get into a really, really crazy Rob territory that I love to talk about in that opening scene, when she is ignoring Coraline, when she's working on her garden journal and Coraline's talking about how she got poison oak and how she almost fell down a well and the mother is ignoring her, it's not just the mother and Coraline. It's the mother and Coraline and us. We are a character in that scene. That's how deep I look at this movie. Heisenberg's Uncertainty Principle, we mentioned it earlier. It, the, the giving perspective to something changes the measurements of it. That's what I'm saying. I... I think I see where you're coming from. I still am not. I still not on the same page with you, though. I, I definitely think that when it comes to this kind of abuse, and this this is where my knowledge of the psychology actually does break down a little bit, and I am speculating. Sure. Um, but I I, be, I believe, from what I know, that that the mother who is a devouring mother, I don't think that you'll find a position where they're not so focused on their child that it is that it could be misconstrued as neglect ever and that's like fair. i don't think that's fair i i even in the situation where like I, you know some of the worst case scenarios i'm thinking of like the the mother who was a cheerleader who wants to relive those days and therefore pushes her daughter to be a cheerleader like that mother's all about her daughter's cheer career that's like, the not, the vicariousness we talked about before yeah. yes yeah the parasitic vicariousness like that's not like, I don't think you'll ever run into a situation, even if the daughter's not even present, where that mom's, like, not talking about and bragging about her daughter. Well, to to counterpoint that, I understand what you're saying, and I, well, full disclosure, which I'm glad you gave as well, I am not a psychologist. Ben and I are both mathematicians and statisticians that try to ignore personal in- intercommunication, I think, for our studies. But with that being said, at the same time, don't you think that there is a level of this movie pointedly made by the fact that the other mother, the abusive mother, has done this to other children before that she would start to view them as disposable, and Coraline, being the fourth iteration of this event, starts to view her as disposable. That, that oh. the, moments, the moments of seeing it in this, you know, not full attention-giving way is just part of the process because it's almost become rote for the other mother. That's what I'm saying. Okay, so that's interesting. I... The... But there I, were I three other children before that, of course. We we know yeah, the well, three. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't I didn't consider it from that perspective because in the, with the Hansel and Gretel thing, the witch eating the children, like yeah, she's definitely ate other children. But but the idea, like that's just the the kind of fairy tale description of the behavior of of consuming a child's future 
uh, is the actual eating of the child. Like that's what the, the fairy tale or the yes. kind of symbolic description is. Um, so for there to be a next child, I mean, in the Hansel and Gretel scenario, I'm sure that they were not the first mm-hmm. uh, for the sake of that story. Uh, but I, I never thought of that as, as being a literal meaning that there are more children. I, I always thought of that as just the the fairy tale kind of mechanic that they oh. use to create somebody who eats children. Okay, that's, I understand where you're coming from, but I've, I've always seen that as, you know, Coraline is the, the iteration of the same thing happening repeatedly that breaks the fairy tale. So I... And now you now you're fucking making me think about cycles of abuse. Yeah, yeah. So, see, but if that's the case, if we're if we're talking about cycles of abuse, it wouldn't be one person moving on to their fourth victim. It would be the fourth generation of this family breaking out of this. Yeah, in this in this movie, of course, it is one person moving through generations. But you're right in which we talked about in our run episode with the. You know, not to give anything away from the the batshit crazy final shot of run that it is, which we talk about cycles of abuse. This is more I took as an allegorical representation of cycles of abuse from one mother continually eating children. Because That's... because this this movie can exist in the real timeline. Of course, Run is a realistic movie that ex- exists in the sense that, you know, I want to watch my daughter grow up for 30, 40, 50 years. The, the the world of Coraline is the mother saying, I want to eat my child after maybe, I don't know, two to five years or something like that? Yeah, we don't, I guess we don't know how long. We don't, we don't. But but you, you, you see what I'm saying, right? Is that it's, it's almost the same idea from a different perspective, and one Coraline being more literally eating than the other. Yes, and, and, but I, I have trouble kind of framing the movie that way for myself, even if, if, with that in mind, because... It is so incredibly clear that the child aspect or having the kid around to shower with affection for whatever reason is important to the Beldon. And that's so like I have difficulty believing that that she would begin to treat it like a rope thing when it's something that she's kind of passionately pursuing. Well, no, you you're I you're right. And and you know, I I get what you're saying, but I think in the in the context of this this story of Coraline the Beldam is eating them faster. You know, in when... Uh, God, I, I, I... You have to know, I love that we're comparing this movie to Run. I love that. But Run is the sense that Sarah Paulson wants that kid forever. That's her kid. I think the Bell Dam is more in the sense of getting tired with her playthings and needs more kids faster. So you're, you're thinking of, of the Bell Dam more as like a serial killer who's having... Uh, yes, yes, in, in the sense that... Uh, like I said earlier, I said a lot earlier, I don't know how long ago it was, but I think the Bell Dam is this abstract concept of manipulation that... How how much fun is it to manipulate the same person for a long time? Don't you want to branch out and try new things? I think it's the same thing as, you know, the Bell Dam wants more partners. The Bell Dam wants to taste something new. And there's a reason that, you know, in the Ghost Children, you're, they're from different generations and they're from different genders. I think the Bell Dam is in, you know, the, the amplification of, of the Bell Dam feeding on children is made so that we know that she's doing it quickly. And and that this also guides me to the, you know, something that YB says at the beginning of the movie. She's like, uh, he says, you know, Grandma usually doesn't rent out, you know, rooms to children or families with children. And I think there's a reason because there's a, a 
fairly long but quick cooldown period of the Bell Dam wanting children. Maybe it hasn't happened in YB's lifetime. It seems that the last time the Bell Dam ever stole a child was his grandmother's sister. And that's two generations prior. So maybe the Bell Dam is is not as, you know, lifelong grafted to children, but wants them quicker than, you know, what we know as a human life, if that makes sense. I feel like there's there maybe is Okay, I don't know. I've I've never thought of the devouring mother as also having kind of the characteristics of a serial killer who has a cooldown period. Sure, sure. No, no. You know, no. I'm 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 not I'm not I'm not uh, getting angry at you for any of this because, of course, you know, uh, as we said on Cinematis before, neither Ben or I share our notes with each other. We go into all this cold, so every time one of us throw a great idea to the other, there's that rant period to make sense of what the other one said. <laughs> Yes. Um, so yeah, I, I just I I definitely I can see wh- why you're holding on on to your beliefs about the movie. I don't. I'm not quite convinced. Okay. Uh, okay. But the reason I'm not quite convinced, it, it all comes back to uh, some of it being my gaps in knowledge of the psychology of the situation and sure. and the the psychological situation of that archetypal mother. Now that's also assuming that the people who made the movie had like a, a real psychological knowledge of the situation and perhaps they don't as well. That so, I'm I'm so glad you bring that up because of course of everything we've talked about in um you know the Monkey Bone episode this Henry Selick series there's not a lot of information about him period it's just kind of his creative forces I don't really know about much about his family life I don't know much about his um you know desire for the the the, the childhood that we talked a lot about in the James and Giant Peach episode so you're right I'm I'm glad you bring that up because man it's it's uh it'd be different you know if if we knew something about you know uh, Henry Selleck was an abused child and wrote this from his his own memories. It'd be different, but we don't. It's it's just this this. Uh, it has to come down to allegory, I think, uh, right. meta metaphorical allegory. Right. So it's just, I would say that from my knowledge of the situation, I I would kind of reject the idea that the it's like I I'm having trouble like kind of closing the idea of, of the abusive mother as the story concept. I mean, obviously, it's there in terms of like the belt and eating the children. Like, there's obviously yeah. that Hansel Metal Witch part, but having that actually connected to her real life, um, I'm, I'm having trouble closing that loop. Okay. And if I if I were to watch it again, maybe I could close that loop. But um, but the real life mother just does not seem at all to me like if she's abusive, it's not in the devouring mother kind of way. It's in the it's in the neglect, spiteful, yep. okay. coercion kind of. Way. No, no, I know and, what you're saying. I know what you're saying, and I think I've made my point about it that being a um a third party perspective persona and that type of stuff. You know, I don't want right. I don't want to reiterate that. But but I think just the thing you know because we've we've now discussed this to a great length, and and this is god damn Ben. I'm so glad we got to talk about Coraline in this way. I just want to reiterate, kind of with with this kind of you know perspective in mind. Just kind of me putting forward this idea of the abusive mother. W- wouldn't it kind of be really cool to watch this and run back to back and pick somebody's brain about that idea? <laughs> yes, I, I definitely think so. Like maybe and- you watch Run first, which is very, you know, superficial on the surface. Like Sarah Paulson is 
fucking terrible in that movie. Well, terrible as her character. She's one of the most fantastic performances about that movie. But then you go, okay, now watch Coraline with that same thing in mind. Like, like using Run to plant the seed of Coraline into somebody else's brain. I don't know. I just kind of think that's a wonderful double feature. <laughs> well, definitely in, in the sense that the, the Bell Dam, even, even if the, even with my disagreements about, about the outside mother, um, the Bell Dam is still the devouring mother. And, like, there's definitely still those parallels. So, yeah, I mean, I'm with you that, that it would be kind of funny to to not reveal to the other person what the double feature is and then just watch these two movies back to back. Yes, um, yes. So, so I, I just looked at our, our spreadsheet, and I, I hope that our fans like when we do this in real time, because I really enjoy doing this in real time. I just looked at the spreadsheet. Uh, this is coming out before our run episode. <laughs> oh, no. All right. Um, can we just say maybe then, just a quick aside before we get into the other things about this movie and our, our questions and whatnot, um, check out the Patreon we are discussing movies that are fucking fundamentally amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely the case on the Patreon. Um, obviously, it's similar to the, to the main feed, we're going to hit some movies that we don't like, hit some yep. movies that we do like, hit some movies that blow us away. And that's what, uh, what Run and Searching, which I think is the, why we did Run. Yes, yes. Searching um, came out a while ago. That's... Searching and the searching follow-up episode are already out because that that was a whole month of that. But, I mean, maybe this is a great way to promote the Patreon to say, hey, Ben and I are talking a lot about this movie that we really like, and we're going to go into hard detail about, you know, later this month. Definitely, and, I, and I'm all for it. Come, come listen to that discussion. Uh, I, I, rem- I scarcely remember it because it's happened so long ago, but I know we had a good time, and uh. we definitely did deep into some stuff in that episode. I, I, I'm, now that we talk about it, I might watch Run again tonight. <laughs> <laughs> such a good movie. Such a, such a, such a good, hey, and if you ever want to really get into a, 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 a glimpse into Rob's nitpicky mind, you know, that's the movie for it. Because not to give any spoilers, but I know there's one point where I'm like, why did the asthmatic girl take her inhaler out of the drawer and not close the drawer? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good, that's good. So, I mean, that, that was... I, that's what I wanted to come to this episode with. You know, I talked about how beautiful I think it is. I talked about how really this movie has given me two big different thoughts as I've watched it. I, I want to throw it to you now, Ben. You know, what did did you get anything from this movie? I know you mentioned earlier that you didn't watch it maybe as intently as you would have liked to or something because of our recording schedule. But was there anything that you wanted to highlight about Coraline um, at all? Because cause really, uh, you know... This is one of those series, and I know I mentioned it at the start of uh, a Nightmare for Christmas, that this is one of the things I love Henry Selleck, and I want other people to experience it. I'm so glad you've gotten to experience it now, Ben. Anything about Coraline that you wanted to highlight? Uh, I mean, we've already highlighted a lot of it in terms of just how, how uh, cinematic it is and, and how kind of enjoyable the story is, etc. Um, I think the thing that stuck out to me, though, like it, at least because it's so prevalent right at the beginning, is, is this child dealing with neglect and yeah. and the kind of imaginal world that they try to escape to. And so this is actually going to be yet a third thing that you might consider about this movie, is that is that this, this child dealing with neglect escapes to an imagination world where she eventually learns that the imagination world is not somewhere she can stay. Ah, oh... Yeah, no, you're right. Oh, Jesus Christ, Ben! I, I don't want to yeah, steal I, your th- I don't want to steal your thunder, but you're saying something it, like 
imperfections of reality are inescapable, but at the same time, escapism postpones you growing up? Some, something like that, yeah. So okay. definitely, the, definitely that escapism, um, not to use it in an offensive way, but to use it the way it's defined, escapism retards growth. Sure, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's escaping from your reality. And, and you'll, you'll see this in... Um, and Rob, actually, I, I think, unfortunately, we both know somebody who, who kind of fits this in my uh, my ex, who never grew up all the way because they spent so much time in their imagination. And that's... Um, ah, yes, yes. Ben knows his ex, and I know myself. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, so, so that's something that I that I kind of took from this this movie is that like this person had like a substandard life, and they chose to try to escape it in this imagination world, but then they eventually realized that staying in the imagination world had its own consequences. Yeah, yeah. No, no. That that's really really cool. Uh, I, I, the the idea of escapism can postpone growing up. Th- this movie might hit on it in a way that is more uh, fundamentally artistically charged than what I've always thought of it as you know I've gotten to the point now that I'm nearly 30 when I go back and just watch old episodes of Law and Order that I've seen before I kind of feel bad about it because I'm like why aren't I watching new things (laughs) I'm not going to say there's not a place for comfort you know oh Uh, sure sure yeah but you know yeah I I think we're all in agreement so I'm glad you brought that up something else that I'm I watched. Uh, I mentioned earlier that I like to read, you know, stories about um, what people think of this movie, and I'm not going to mention the ones that I think are some crack.com bullshit. Like, don't get me started on the fucking like, you know, nonsense of I think the parents were dead the whole time because one of them mentions the accidents. Fuck that. Fuck that shit. One of the things that I found actually really interesting that somebody I read on on a Letterbox review talked about how they thought this movie was Coraline has to come to recognize the roots of her parents' flaws and realize what they've sacrificed to give her a life. And I was like, I've never gotten that, but I kind of can see that. You know, she's realizing that her parents are doing and being neglectful to her for a reason, not just because they dislike her. You, you know what I mean? You, are, are, you know what they mean? This this person on Letterboxd that I did not credit appropriately, which I'm very fucking upset about right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can I can see why somebody would would get that from this, and it, it actually is a little bit connected to what I was talking about, in the sense that it, it, in the living through this escapism, she she realizes that she can't stay there, but she also realizes that real life wasn't so bad, and yeah, and uh, so I, oh. I think. Yes, thank you. I'm um, not to cut you off, but I, I, you, what you just said reminded me of a, one of my favorite quotes from this movie. You know, when when Coraline is going through the challenge at the end of the of the movie, and she encounters Mister B, who's just an embodiment of rats. Mister B says, "You think winning game is good thing? You'll just go home and be bored, being ignored, same as always." That that's you're exactly right. Yes. Yeah. So so that's I mean. To say that it's her coming to terms with her parents' flaws, I mean, I, I find that tough to swallow just because her parents, outwardly, their behavior towards her changed significantly at the yeah. end of the movie. Yeah. And so I, I find it, I, I can see kind of where they would be coming from in, in the sense that maybe with this new viewpoint, she sees this side of her parents and appreciates it more, while yeah. the other side still exists. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
So, so yeah, I guess I could, I could see that. And that, that kind of, I feel like, is a tie into to the same kind of theme that I was mentioning. That, that's where also I want to tie it back into my, you know, the second thing theme we talked about, and the idea that, that it's the mother. The mother is the abusive one. The father in the movie, whether it be the original or the other father, seems to be a puppet of the mother. Like, in, in the, um, you know, other world, he gets turned into a pumpkin eventually because he's a gardener. But even in that first scene, he's like, Coraline says, you don't play the piano. And he goes, oh, it's okay. The piano plays me. Voiced by the fucking amazing John Hodgman. I love John Hodgman. Um, uh, podcast. He's a, he's a podcast king as far as I'm concerned. He's a great, great articulate mind. I think he's the founder of Mental Floss even. But enough about that. But you you see what I'm saying that the the other mother is controlling everybody in that universe. Well, and I don't know if I if I would go so far as to, so yes, the other mother is controlling the entire other universe. Yeah. But in terms of the the real world, I don't know that I would go so far as to say that the real mother is controlling of the father. But I will say she's kind of a bitch to the father. Well, I'm glad you say that because doesn't that add to my theory of the outward appearance that you would see it as normal and it's really manipulative? Because we get that scene when, you know, the the, the original father says something like, hey, you know, if you, if you have that dream again, I want to be involved. He has some, like, quippy line where he's, like, siding with Coraline. And the, the original mother's response is, if you want those pages edited, do them now. Like, she still has that controlling aspect. That's where I'm getting at the sense of that, you know, this is how an outsider would view it. There's a third party that is characterized by literally our eyes as the audience that the movie is taking into account. Uh, I guess the, the part that I'm disconnecting with from that is that I, st- I feel, I find that other mother, or the, I'm sorry, the real mother also bad. Like, I don't see it as benign. I see it as... Um, as, as bad, like it's not a great. Okay, movie. okay, yeah, I, mm, you're right, you're right. I mean, you know, there's a few lines here and there where you know she comes across as a little negative, but for the most part, she's kind of you know neutral negative, I guess. One of the things I I was thinking about saying at the start of this episode was, uh, I, I did not call him crazy, Coraline. He's drunk. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what I was thinking about actually is is on the way to the to the catalog pitch or whatever the hell that is. is yeah. Yeah. Um, the dad says something about I don't even remember. What he, it's something like are, are you or like are you sure you won't come with me or something like that. Like I didn't. I don't really understand what how she ties into what she says next, but she says something like. Don't worry, they're gonna like it. Yeah, At he's, least he's like, like he's chapters. like, are you sure? You, are you sure you don't want to come with me? You know, you're the editor, and she's like, no. If if they like your work, they'll like my editing. It'll all come hand in hand. But no, she says something like, "At least they'll they'll like my chapters." Oh well, yes, yeah. You bring up a good point. He's like, I'm, I'm. He's like, well, they like it. They'll like my chapters. What a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, hey, this is not like a benign character. Like, this but is she's, a shitty character. She's a, she's a bitch when we focus in on that line. As an audience, as a character as a whole, we see her as just, like, totally believable. I guess that might be the thing that I'm missing is that I believe that she's this overworked mother with those type okay. of things. So, sure. Yes. And then, of course, the I'll next scene is when she goes to the uniform uh, store and, and Car- Coraline wants the gloves and, and her mother's like, we're getting the uniform. And it's, like, believable as an outsider perspective. If you went into a uniform costume, Ben, and you saw this happening, this little kid rolling around on a chair back and forth wanting gloves and the mother going, no, stop it, uniform, wouldn't you be like, good, I'm glad she did that? 
wouldn't you, aren't you one of the people who says, yes, I want this mother to stop making her child yell about a candy bar at the, uh, con- the line of a, of a grocery store? And that's the thing. That's the outward view of an audience we get from the normal mother. We're really, there might be pure abuse going on in the background. So it, it's, it's the times at home that I disagree with the most. Whenever they're out in public, I, I agree with you. Like in the in the, the uniform store, that mother could do more to take her to to actually discipline her child before sure, I would think sure. it's borderline abusive. But it, it's the it's the times at home where she's just straight up ignoring her child, where I'm like, that's that's the part where like from the outside perspective, I don't see this as benign. See that that's where I don't I don't see a difference because when the mother and the daughter are at the uniform store or the grocery store, and the mother is shutting the daughter down in, in, a, in a way that cultural or societal will find acceptable, you know, that happens. When the mother at, with the daughter is at home in the same circumstance, she sees nobody watching her the same as retail workers watching her. There, there's a difference when somebody comes into play like a, a store clerk that's trying things on with a daughter. There's a difference when the actresses come into play. I, I think that the, the abusive mother doesn't see a difference between retail workers and invisible people. I, I don't really want to use this term, but, you know, the, this abusive mother is the Karen that sees these people as useless and will not impact her relationship with her daughter. I would have to think about it more. I... Fair. Good, good I, call, uh, Ben. No, good call. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I just, I, like I said, I see where you're coming from. Uh, I'm not sure that I could agree, but I, I don't think it's crazy. Well, way. well, maybe to, you know, to, I, I mean, we spent a lot of time on this, and I love that we're spending a lot of time on this, but to just harp on it one more time, you know, it's kind of the, um, the thing that, you know, in Run, once again, when Sarah Paulson takes the, uh, Kira Allen, the daughter, to the the movie uh, theater. Sarah Paulson sees no problem with that. She's like, all these people at the movie theater, all these workers at the movie theater, they're not going to see any problem with it. The only problem starts to come when Kira Allen goes to the pharmacy, somebody who has direct impact on Kira Allen's life. That's when the manipulation comes out. I kind of see this as the same way. When the mother and daughter and Coraline go out into the town and, and buy these things, the mother, the abusive mother knows that there's no implication of what these people are, are going to do to impact their lives. It's going to take something more important like the neighbors or somebody that actually has a say in these things, like the pharmacist and run. Yeah, I see the point. This is good. No, I like that. I, I really like this, Ben, because maybe we can do a Coraline on a revisit. And you better believe I want to revisit Coraline because, goddamn, I love this movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, I don't know about you, but that sounds like Patreon content. I'll be okay with that. I'll be okay with that. Uh, Patreon content might also be uh, the uh, the Anomalisa uh, <laughs> episode and the Anomalisa commentary track I've watched, but. That's beside the point. I don't know if Ben's even watched Anomalisa yet. I think I've watched it six times in a month and a half. Um, stop motion is why I'm bringing it up. But Ben, this has been great. This is exactly what I wanted. I, I, I mean, this is what we've done the entire Henry Selick series. I, I don't know what it is, but for some reason about stop motion, we get so heated about our debates and things like that. And, um, and I love, just to say it one more time, because I'm sure we said it this entire month, I love when we can both reach a point where we go, yeah, you might be right, but I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, yes. is there anything else you'd like to highlight about Coraline? 
before we get into our, our final... Well, I guess, I guess before, because I have some rankings to do at the end of this series. Is there anything you'd like to highlight about Coraline and or Henry Selleck at the end of this episode? I think just that, that uh, you know, to, to stay focused on the positive, this, this movie is, I think, by far the most enjoyable experience of, of the Henry Selleck. I think I think you really said it earlier, like something that I was really happy that you said is that, you know, most times this type of animation turns you off from watching something um, and, and growing to the point where you can realize watching something has an artistic value for the thing that you're watching is amazing. And, you know, we talked about it back in the, the Henry Selleck Patreon start. We talked about it back in Rockadoodle, you know, realizing that an animation style might be used for an artistic purpose. And I, I think that's kind of my final thought on Henry Selleck is that I want everybody to realize that, is that you might not like looking at it immediately. You might be turned off from it immediately. If you gag when you see something, that's kind of weird. Um, but give it a chance. Give it a chance. And... If Henry Selleck makes another movie, holy shit, Ben and I are going to be back here on a bonus episode talking about it. I bet you better believe that. <laughs> That's right. I mean, I did, I did watch all those David Lynch movies. So, so sure with, <laughs> with that being said, I have two, two rankings to do for this episode, Ben. Because one, I want to do my Henry Selleck rankings, but like I told Ben many months ago... I'm not actually complete, or I was not complete, in my like-a-movie rankings, which are all stop-motion. And so I said to Ben, when we decided to do this series, that I was going to watch all five of the like-a-movies and give my rankings on them as well. And I want to start with the like-a-rankings. And I want to do that first because Coraline is, of course, our kickoff to the Leica Studios system. Now, just just real quick, um, you know, not to... Uh, disrail the conversation when we when I get to my rankings. Have you seen any other Leica movies? And I'll list them for you. Um, Paranorman, The Box Trolls, Kubo and the Two Strings, and Missing Link. Have you seen any of these, Ben? I have not. Okay. I, have heard, I think I've heard of Paranorman and Box Trolls. Okay. So just just to be fair, I didn't I didn't want to disrupt anything because of course whenever we do rankings, I know it gets thrown over to Rob in a big way, but I. I, I did actually watch all of these movies for this recording. Um, a little behind the scenes, Ben knows that we are doing this recording very early. I have legitimately watched all five Leica movies in the last 48 hours. <laughs> I am okay with this because, Jesus Christ, they're fucking great! There's one I don't like, and that will start at my number five, and that is Missing Link. You, kn- you know what, kind of, Ben? It turns out... If you get Zach Galifianakis to play Bigfoot, but play it as literal as Amelia Bedelia, it's fucking annoying. (laughs) Missing Link is a grating slog of an experience that I give a lot of points to for its animation, but Missing Link of the Leica movies is my number five. And I just wanted to get that out of the way because, Jesus, I don't, I don't know if I'd recommend it to anybody. There's some really good action moments. I mean, maybe a whole star was earned on that boat chase moment where they are playing with the, the direction of gravity as a boat is being t- churned to and forth by, uh, by waves. That was kind of cool. But, Jesus Christ, Bigfoot has never been more annoying. Now we're getting to the good ones. Number four, which I think people are going to be very angry at me about. Kubo and the Two Strings. So I have, a, I have a really explicit argument for this. The first act of Kubo and the Two Strings is the most visually amazing thing I've ever seen. Better than Coraline. Like, Laika 
has taken the art form of stop motion to a plane I did not think could exist in the first maybe 30 minutes of Kubo and the Two Strings. I am so disappointed by the last two acts of Kubo and the Two Strings becoming goofy character comedy, like comedy, you know, uh, uh, jeez, I can't even think of the word. It's so fucking stupid. There's too much goofiness. And honestly, I would have loved Kubo and the Two Strings more if it kept serious. It gets too goofy and it becomes one of my least favorite things. Love saves all. No good. I get it for a kid's movie, but no good. Kubo and the Two Strings could have been so good, but I had to knock it down a lot of pegs because of the story, because of the outcome, that type of stuff. Now, number three, people are going to get mad at me about this from what I've read on the internet. Number three is The Box Trolls. The Box Trolls is so fucking good. The first 20 minutes of Box well, there's the prologue, and then the next 20 minutes of The Box Trolls is silent. There's no dialogue. It's just these fucking weird box troll creatures investigating the real world. And I love it. I'm so enthralled by the animation. And then when you get to that second act and third act and you have these characters coming together because the the whole concept of the box trolls is that a human child was stolen by the box trolls. Plot twist. It was not stolen. It was given. You know, that's kind of the third act reveal. Oh, the the way they reveal the story, it's, it's so fucking good. And the box trolls in and of itself... If you love stop-motion animation, this is an unremarkable feat of that. This is two movies after Coraline. They have done so much with the technology. Box Trolls is a feat to watch. And also, I just want to mention, Ben, you're going to like this. There's a girl in the Box Trolls. Her name is Winifred. She's the sassiest cutie patootie. Oh, I love it. I love me a sassy cutie patootie. Now... Here's the thing. I might I might be breaking some minds right here. My number two like a movie is Coraline. Yes, yes, as much as I love Coraline, there's one better than it, which I'd never seen until watching it a day ago for this recording. I think everything I've said about Coraline still stands, but I want to jump right to number one, the one you said you've heard of, Paranorman. Have you seen Paranorman, Ben? I just want to I just want to hit this again, just in case you have. No, I haven't. Okay, so I am not kidding you. First two minutes of Paranorman, I'm like, this is really cool. This is a really neat, you know, good use of animation. Next five to ten minutes, like the literal beginning of the movie, the drop happens that reveals the concept of the movie, and I'm like, oh, shit, this is amazing. The next maybe 50 minutes, I'm like, this is really, really cool. This is 100% funny, like, by myself, I'm laughing while I'm watching Paranorman. I'm, like, literally uproarious laughing by myself. There's some really good jokes. One of my favorite ones is that one guy says to Paranorman, Norman, our main character, the titular Paranorman, he says, he's like, you have to read this by the witch's grave to stop the curse. And Norman goes, ah! And the guy goes, you swear? And Norman says, like, the F word? I love that joke. It's so great. And then there's in the third act, the first part of the third act is the big sister, Courtney Babcock, who I am way too sexually attracted to. Uh, she says, you know, stop fighting with my brother. We need to understand the the difference between zombies and humans because it's a zombie movie, basically. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is so heartfelt. This is so cool. I'm so into this. 
The next part of the movie is Norman confronting the witch. And there is maybe a three-minute segment that I am not kidding you, Ben, and our audience, but mostly Ben, because I know he loves animation. There is three minutes of Paranorman that is the pure, transcendent ideal of what animation can be. It is the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. When that three minutes ends and I'm in fucking shock and awe of how they could even do these things, Paranorman confronts the witch and I sob my eyes out. I am not kidding you. I am crying at the end of Paranorman. I was bawling. And I know I've said this before. At the end of um, the L'Illusioniste, the Sylvain Chaumet movie, L'Illusioniste, for that last three minutes, I'm crying. That's kind of like I am just have tears rolling down my face. I know I've said to, said to Ben as well, at the end of the Adventure Time finale, when everything comes together, my eyes are tearing up. This is nothing in comparison to Paranorman. I am literally full-on crying at the end of Paranorman. It is the most beautiful thing I've seen in a long, long fucking time. And that is why Paranorman gets my number one Leica movie. So I would love to give our audience and you, Ben, the request of watching Paranorman. You are going to laugh for so long. You're going to be in shock for three minutes of how good the animation is. And then I think you're going to be bawling your goddamn eyes out because that last few minutes is the saddest fucking thing I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm definitely going to watch it. That's a glowing recommendation. Uh, which you don't normally give, yep. or you yep. don't give lightly. So. Yeah, I, I, and I'm glad you say that because I also want to put the recommendation of I am going to buy Paranorman on Blu-ray. <laughs> 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 uh, it is fantastic. So those are my like of movie rankings. I knew I wanted to do that. I told Ben a while ago that I wanted to watch these movies because they're a blind spot in my movie history, and we talked about Coraline, the first like a movie, uh, and I'm kind of shocked that Coraline is not my number one. It's my number two. Number one, Baron Norman. But now, that brings us to the man of the hour, Henry Selleck. He's only got four films, and i got to rank them, which I always love to do with our directors. I want to make sure everybody knows this. This is ungodly difficult. <laughs> I love every Henry Selleck film. In a perfect world, they would, be all, they would be all tied for number one, but I can't do that. I think the thing that I've found, Ben is that I know my top two and bottom two. Maybe those will switch based on, you know, how I feel and when I watch them, but I'm pretty sure number one and two are fixed, number three and four are fixed, and in those groups they might change. So I've had to pick a, a ranking for this, this episode. I had to pick a ranking for this discussion, and Jesus, oh God, it was tough. I, I cannot express how tough this was for how much I love Henry Selleck. You know, it's not a it's not a Martin Brest where I hate Beverly Hills Cop and there's an easy, you know, bottom of the list. It's oh god. But I'm I'm just gonna jump right into it. Okay. Number four. The Nightmare Before Christmas. Yes, I'm giving it my last place. Ben is losing his mind because he knows how much I love that movie. But Ben, just like we talked about in our discussion of that episode, which I know Ben remembers very vividly, I I cannot get over the hang up. That Oogie Boogie shows up that late. There, there's a, I have a fundamental problem in the storytelling of that movie that Oogie Boogie takes so long to show up when he should have been one of the first act reveals. So I have to go Nightmare Before Christmas as my number four spot well, on Harry Selleck. Rob, you, I'm sure you remember that I might even have an issue with calling that movie 
or saying that, that anything about that movie is storytelling. So. Uh, I, no, I don't remember that at all. I thought you said it was the greatest movie you've ever seen, and we are going to sing the songs in a bonus episode for all of the Henry Selleck musical movies. <laughs> yeah, that's that's actually right. Yeah, sorry, I was mistaken. And now, like I said, my, my bottom two are grouped together, and they're very close, but number three I have to give to James and the Giant Peach. James and the Giant Peach, I think, like I said in that episode, of course, as Ben remembers... What a wonderfully positive message. There's a great, great, great message to give to children, to people in that movie, and I really like what it's going for. And, like I said before, not only in that episode, but when we did Matilda, I'm a sucker for some Roald Dahl nonsense. Now, here's the thing that I think everybody's waiting for. Of course, there's only two movies left. It's Monkey Bone and Coraline. What is the order going to be? And Jesus Christ, I cannot explain to you guys, a Ben and our audience, how much effort I put into thinking about which one is better. And I, I'm going to have to say my number two Henry Selleck movie is Monkey Bone. Monkey, Monkey Bone is a masterpiece. Monkey Bone is such a good movie. But the only reason I give Coraline the number one spot is because Monkey Bone is steadfast in his message, I believe. I believe that I have heard so many arguments about Monkey Bone's themes, I've heard so much hate for Monkey Bone, and I've always saw it as a fixed thing in the thematic art versus the artist, or artist versus the art, that I love it, and don't get me wrong, listen to that episode, it's three hours fucking long of Rob talking about the Church of the Subgenius, it's great. Coraline, to me, hits the nail on the head for the artistry. It's Henry Selleck's pure, imaginative vision, uncompromised by financial gain, by anything. They got to do whatever they wanted to do. And like we've been talking about in this episode, it's a living document. We can get this many discussions and this many interpretations about one film, and I will always take that over something I am steadfastly feeling about. So... Number four, Nightmare Before Christmas. Number three, James the Giant Peach. Number two, Monkey Bone. Number one, Coraline. And I think I want to say, Coraline, ain't she a cutie patootie? <laughs> I, I mean, can, can we agree, Ben? Coraline is a cutier patootier than Brendan Fraser? <laughs> oh, that's tough. Oh, um, okay. I might, we might have just started another hour of this discussion. <laughs> <laughs> no, of course, yeah. Coraline is definitely the... I literally want her to be my best friend. I, I want to be best friends with her. Like, not even, I want her to be my best friend. I want to be reciprocal. Like, I want to hang out with Coraline. I want to be like, Coraline, let's watch Coraline. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I, I'm so sad to see it go. Like, uh, I'm so glad I got to watch these movies. Like, seriously, Paranorman. Like, literally check it out. Like, I I was cr- in crazy tears at the end of Paranorman. It's almost insane. Um, but Henry Selleck, uh, I, I think we should say at the end of this, before we get to our questions, um, I think you and I, and of course Zach, who should have been here for some other discussions in this series, we can all agree, the next time Henry Selleck releases a movie, we're going to cover it. Like, if, yeah, he, if yeah. he wants to pump out a stop-motion movie, we're going to be all about that. And I know, Ben, we talked a little bit about it, I'm pretty sure, in our Patreon episode that started this series. His next movie is going to be him working with Key and Peele. Yeah, so I would love to see that. I love Key and Peele. I love Henry Selleck, the combining of them. Who knows? But my 
Uh, I'm putting my hopes out there. Now, I want to I wanna do a little goof right here and ask, Ben, do you have a Henry Selleck film ranking? <laughs> um, I Let's see. Uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, definitely the last. Oh, pfft. You've only watched that once in the last 15 years. <laughs> uh, I think probably James and the Giant Peach third. You you have gone on record. I'm pretty sure it's our Monkey Bone episode when I talk about Henry Selleck and I say something like, oh, yeah, James the Giant Peach. And you interject with, I don't think I liked that movie. Like, you had a visceral response to that. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, let's see. I think uh, Monkey Bone, second. And Coraline first. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, okay. I will put a little – I'll leave a little space here. Ben wants to uh, adapt this after – we have actually recorded this whole series because guess what? Peek behind the curtains. We're doing this out of order. Uh, Rob's the only one that's actually watched all of these movies prior to this recording. <laughs> Rob uh, fundamentally canceled not? a tutoring session to watch James and the Giant Peach last night. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think I'm probably going to to make some people angry in, in the or I already did in the Nightmare Before Christmas episode. So that's. Um, but yeah, that's definitely. I, 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 Ben and I know that I have things to say about what he said to me about Nightmare Before Christmas, but I will save that for that episode. Uh, they were I, fighting words. <laughs> yeah, I, was just, I might have started a gang war with that text. I, I didn't realize that that. I didn't realize what I was doing was a war crime. That's great. Uh, that's great. So I mean, I mean, with with that being said, you know, I mean, other other than that, I mean, you know, just Henry Selick. Jeez, I, I've I've wanted to do this for so long. I, like I said, a monkey bone. He's and our Patreon episode about his short films. He's he's one of my favorite creative forces. I mean, I think you could agree with me, Ben. Even if we're not doing this in chronological order, and you really haven't gotten the full exposure of Henry Selick that you know, and the discussions about them, I think there's one thing that we can all agree on. He has a vision, and he executes that vision. And isn't that what we want from filmmakers? Yes and yes. Um, and also, he has a phenomenal mustache. Oh. He, he... <laughs> yeah, yeah. More recently, I think, but yeah. <laughs> oh, I was just, I was making a Tom Selleck joke. It's... Oh, you do? Okay, he, had a, he has a mustache later in his life around Coraline. I thought, okay. Oh, okay. Well, excuse me for thinking Ben knew all of the Coraline and Henry Selleck history like I did. But no, I mean, that that's kind of the thing that it's like, um... This is the stuff that I wanted to get at with this series. Whenever we cover a director, whether it be Paul Bartel, whether it be Danny DeVito, Martin Brest, Henry Selleck, I want to talk about their impact. And, you know, I, I think Henry Selleck has made a great impact in that, you know, I, I don't think, as, as we talked about in our Nightmare Before Christmas episode, I don't think stop motion really exists in this modern era if it were not for Henry Selleck. And that's a really important thing. We, we would be mogged down, bogged down in the mire of 2D... Uh, or sorry, 3D CGI animation. If it were not for Henry Selick and you know Phil Knight making Leica, uh, and it, it's it's just we we can both agree, Ben. We we shouldn't lose these art forms, painstakingly uh, yeah, patient part. art forms. We shouldn't lose because we can both agree. F- fuck Shrek, Shrek 3D pixel art. Fuck that. Get somebody to draw it. Get somebody to claymation it. Get somebody to make something. Don't fucking put a computer on render for a weekend and go, hey, we got half a movie. Yeah. Well, we, we've already discussed Shrek. People know what we think about that movie. That's why but I like yes. having Ben on the podcast. Every time I bring up Shrek, he goes, nope, we've, we're done. We litigated it. We're done. <laughs> I, well, I just, 
I can't go through that again. Uh, yeah, every a, week I'd be like, let's hate on Shrek again. <laughs> it, it just, there was some part of my life, especially my childhood, where I did not hate Shrek, and then I watched it again as an adult, and it just, yeah. it was a traumatic experience. Uh, no, so no redeeming qualities, I would say. Um, but like you said, we're not here to talk about Shrek. So Ben, I'm so glad that we got to talk about Henry Selleck. This is one of the things that I'm so glad since you became a, a mainstay of Cinemodities that we've gotten to talk about this type of animation that I absolutely love and have loved and that you might not have had such a respect for. And we've gotten to really dive into the creative force behind stop motion. So I'm really glad you've been here. With that being said, that was our conclusion to the Henry Selleck series. We have to talk now, focusing back on Coraline, about our questions. So, I don't think it's any surprise. I'm going to say for both Cinemodities and Late Night, Oh, goddamn yes! Oh my god! Cinemodities, this is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. It's one of the most creative things I've ever seen. If that does not rank up to a Cinemodity compared to the morass of garbage we had, not only today, but back in 2009, oh my god. And Late Night, you better fucking believe, this is in my category of Ludovico technique. I'm going to pry your eyes open to make you watch Coraline. <laughs> So I'm going a hard yes to both. What do you think about Cinemites and Late Night, Ben? Uh, in terms of story, I, I can't call it an oddity, but in terms of art and execution, I definitely will say that it was crafted with more care than anything I've seen maybe ever. How, how about combining those two into the full package? Which one do you think, you, when you say no to one and yes to the other, which one uh, wins in the in that combination? Since I... Am biased to think that other people experience movies very similar to the way that I experience movies. I have to say that the story is probably going to trump the art in Fair. terms of whether it's, it's uh, once we get past the art being palatable, I think the story is going to trump it. Okay. Uh, obviously, okay. there's a point where it's like if, if the art is not palatable, I have a, I'll have a hard time watching it, and I think that I like to believe that everybody's like that. So. Um, I'm, I'm going to have to say no on Cinemodity just because I think that the story is very, I mean, it's, as, as I said earlier, I'm story-oriented and this movie worked for me, and I think that, that kind of in and of itself, like, it worked for me from the get, and I think that in and of itself kind of... Yeah, but you're, you're saying, like, even though, even though it is a very strong story, it's an odd story. Yes, okay. yeah, I definitely fair, think it's, fair. I mean, it's, like, 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 we brought up Parallels to Hansel and Gretel and shit like that, this story is, is oldest time i think um granted i think that there's combining of elements and stuff that make this this particular story unique but i don't think that it is odd late night totally i i would suggest it i'd watch it with you i'd make you watch it you know whatever if well, if you yeah. haven't seen it you should see it it's a good movie <laughs> um yeah so late night totally oddity cinemodity you know um that's that's my well, well, now that I kind of think about it, uh, I'm I'm kind of tempted to be a little bit of a goober and go out on a limb and say, you know, since we talked about it so much, something we don't get to do on the Patreon, do you want to do our questions for Run? I kind of, seeing this, I see this as a, a real big picture, a sister picture to Run, because we don't do the, the questions on our Patreon right. episodes, I'm, but I kind of... We've talked run up so much, and I kind of think in an alternate universe, if we didn't just cover that because of the uh, connection it had to searching, 
that could have been a, a main feed cinemodities episode, right? Sure. Yeah, I think Because so. that, that's the only reason we did it on Patreon was because, oh, hey, the next movie from Anishiganti, we love him, you know, we want to cover him. Yeah. I, I kind of could have, I could kind of see us doing run on the main feed if, if we had not covered it already. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm down to do the questions. For I kind of want to. I kind of really want, I kind of want to watch run right now as well. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, that, that, okay, I mean, maybe let's go category by category. For Cinemodities, um, for Run, oh, holy shit, yes. Like, there's an entire set piece of a woman who is truly in a wheelchair, crawling out of a window, across a roof, back into a window, falling downstairs. If that's not odd, I don't know what is. <laughs> yeah, for Cinemodities, I'm... I'm kind of on the same page we get the the wheelchair crawling scene we also get the basement weird goop murder attempt thing not not yes. even murder because she's not trying to kill her she's trying to like like ruin living her doll brain. turning living yeah. doll yeah, yeah, the, yeah well well also i think maybe we should we should also mention uh for cinemodities there is one of one of the only the only man in this movie with a primary role the mailman he's a hero <laughs> Oh yeah. Doesn't that make it odd that a man yeah. is the hero in this movie? Like that, you have a man who is just pure good. <laughs> and he delivers the mail. Um, and, and you know, I don't even think Spose could hate on this mailman. Like that's the level of. <laughs> you make me want to go psycho, postal on you. You're my arch nemesis, and I don't feel bad because I know you got benefits. When you say don't shoot the messenger, don't shoot that mailman. He's the best mailman. <laughs> That's right. That's right. No, you even bring up a great point. Uh, the um, the paint thinner black goop scene at the end. Yeah. Uh, the moment I thought aliens were going to come into the movie, and that's a <laughs> that's a pure advertisement to f- go to our Patreon and figure out what the hell Rob means by that. But I think kind of then for we're in agreement as well for late night run is a great late night movie. Oh. Yeah, I would watch that movie. If I if I didn't already have a movie planned to watch tonight, I would probably just watch Rock. You're because if you even when you show that to people, you're going to be like, "Listen, buckle the fuck up. You don't know yes. what you're getting into right now." <laughs> That's right. It's gonna like and Run is a wild ride too because like it starts off with this like uplifting, supportive mom feel, and it just it takes a left turn and then it keeps taking left turns and. And when's then, the uh, when when's the uh, internet going to be back? Oh, probably not in a few days. How'd you know I was talking on the phone about the internet? <laughs> I went on the computer last night. One of the one of the smartest written scripts in the history of mankind. Run, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, Jesus Christ. And I think you know before we'll get to it again later. But this has been a big. Uh, we wanted. I think you know. I have. I I goaded Ben into doing this because I really wanted to do it because now that we have actual answers for Ron in our spreadsheet, which we don't have for our Patreon stuff, but this is all a, also a backhanded way to promote our Patreon where we talk about great fucking movies. <laughs> yeah, this episode, I mean, despite how how obviously it's, it's centered on Coraline and how much respect we both have for the movie Coraline, yep. we have definitely talked to Patreon a lot in this in this episode. 
And I, I think it is uh, not without merit. I, the Patreon, we are putting out good content. We're making content rather quickly. If you want to hear us talk, that's a good place to hear it. Uh, you're going to get more access and, and more kind of closer to who we actually are uh, access in the, in the Patreon as well. <laughs> yeah, we do, are, we do a lot of good tangents, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, I mean, in terms of tangents, just in terms of, like, the freedom or, or the, uh, yeah, the freedoms I'm willing to take with how I describe things, and, and Rob is, is in a similar boat, uh, we definitely let a little more of our personality shine through in the, in the Patreon episodes. And I think that in and of itself makes them totally, totally worth listening to, um, you know, I, I try to be a little family friendly. Presentable, on the, on the, yes. Presentable, yeah. I try to be presentable <laughs> on the main feed. Uh, whereas on the Patreon, I am okay with getting drunk enough to ruin a child soccer game. So that's <laughs> get drunk enough to drive an ice cream truck. <laughs> so I, I, th- I think that's maybe the best way to say it is that you're going to get you're going to get real un, unfettered, but definitely edited. Robin did. I, I would agree with that, and now also I'm kind of on the goddamn gung-ho run train. Um, Kira Allen, whose name in the movie of Run, I, her character's name I don't remember, she's Kira Allen, that's her name. Her, her The actress's name is Kira Allen, she plays it so fucking well, like I say in that episode, in the perfect world, she would win a goddamn Academy Award for Best Actress. Here's the question that I have for you, Ben. Kira Allen, is she the baddest bitch in the game? Yes. Yes! Thank you! I knew we had to agree on that. Kira Allen in Run is the fucking baddest bitch in the game. <laughs> Definitely, without a doubt. Okay, maybe if there's a, a live-action Coraline sequel, Kira Allen plays her. Absolutely. <laughs> well, with that being said, enough about Run and the Patreon and stuff. We have one more thing to cover. It's the snacks. It's the restaurant for Coraline. And I have a few. I think some of them are low-hanging fruit. The first one that I wanted to pitch to you, Ben, is something that the father, the real father, says to Coraline in their first dinnertime scene. Uh, he does a little, like, you know, musical thing when he's serving her food and things like that. But the, the musical number or little ditty that he does ends with slime or bedtime. Try some of the chard. You need a vegetable. It looks more like slime to me. Well, it's slime or bedtime, Fusspot. Now what's it going to be? Think they're trying to poison me? So I would like to put something on the menu called Slime or Bedtime, where if a customer orders this menu item, they have to either choose to eat slime or get their lights knocked out by the waiter. Like straight up deck to the face knocked out type of punch. That's the bedtime. Now you might say, you might say, Ben, why would anybody choose this? Because it seems like both options are not good. Slime or getting knocked the fuck out. I had a thought about this. This is what I think is our answer to the trope of date nights. You know when a guy and a girl, guy and anybody, girls and anybody go on a date, and they're like, yes, I would like the, uh, I would like the burger, and she'll have the salad, where the date orders for the other person? This is what I'm thinking. You go on a date, and you order for your date slime or bedtime, and you force the other person you're with to choose to eat slime or get knocked the fuck out. <laughs> that, I mean, that is hilarious. I, I think that that relationship is not going to succeed. Uh, but then again, you are lost in the infinite void together. So it's pretty. Maybe. It's a pretty exclusive use of that dish, but I think it's really funny. 
<laughs> I'm just, I, mean, I was just thinking of the fact where you comedy, like, Rob. Just write it down. Yes, yeah, perfect. Some girl is like, you know, I'll have the, uh, I'll have the, uh, the burger, and she'll have the Slimer bedtime, and she's like, okay, you know. And the waiter's like, Slimer bedtime, and she's like, what? <laughs> and she's like, would you like to eat slime? No. Then bedtime. Poof! <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's a very specific encounter, but I really, really enjoyed that. <laughs> um, I think in terms of low-hanging fruit from this episode, maybe probably something, uh, things that we both agreed on. A dish of beets and strong cheeses from Mr. Babinski, who we did not talk about. Uh, the, the great, wildly animated, you know, acrobatic jumper, Mr. Bobinski, who I'm not sure if you realize, Ben, I've only known this because I've watched this so many times. He has a medal on his shirt. Like, I don't know if you saw in the, a few scenes when he's jumping around, you can see like a a, an army type of valor medal. It is legitimately a recreation of the medal that Russian people who cleaned up the Chernobyl accident were given. So there's an actual story behind why his skin is discolored and he's so weird. He was on the Chernobyl scene. <laughs> Interesting. But he likes beets and strong cheeses. I figured we combine those. Um, of course, what the, the mother says to Coraline, uh, mustard, ketchup, and salsa wraps. You want to talk about a struggle meal? Have we ever talked about struggle meals? Have you heard about this before? I don't think so. So there, I think it's. I think there's probably a subreddit for it, but it's something like a, a type of meme that I've I've heard of for a while now. It's like when you're so poor you have a struggle meal, and oh, okay. it's kind yeah, of so. like an ice sandwich, you know, like bread and water type of thing. <laughs> uh, so I, I think the one that comes to mind for me, I uh, I've, I've been there, Kraft mac and cheese. Wrapped in a tortilla. Ah, yes, yes. I think everybody's been there. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't do the mac and cheese. I've done um, stuffing, like the quick mix stuffing. Okay. With some anything else, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, talk about a struggle meal: mustard, ketchup, salsa. Jesus Christ! Take take the salsa out. Mustard and ketchup might be believable. I don't. Even, I don't want salsa with mustard and ketchup. That's just, oh. Ah, just salsa, right? A salsa wrap. I think we can both agree that I mean, that wouldn't be bad. That's just like that's soft least, tortillas. Yeah, it's at least some servings of vegetables. Oh, but the mustard and ketchup, oh no. And then, of course, from what we get from the other mother at the end of the movie, cocoa beetles from Zanzibar. <laughs> I just love that idea. I have one other thing to pitch. It's more of a question than an actual pitch, but did you have any snacks for the uh, the restaurant from Coraline? I think really uh, the only thing that came to mind for me is in the garden, there's, like, all kinds of moving plants. Mm. I think that we should just have some kind of tentatively moving plants that you can order mm. as, a, as a dish. You're talking and, like the, then, the dragon snappers? Yeah, and yeah. so, like, your food tries to eat you, and you have to eat it first. Oh, I like that. I like that. Wonderful. Uh, when you mention that, you make me think of something, because this, is gonna, this might be, like, the episode where we have to do a revisit, so I, after I edit this, I'll think of all the things I forgot to mention. Isn't it kind of wonderful in the scene where Coraline is becoming in love with the other world? The dragon snappers are nipping at her, knee, at her ankles, and she's rolling down in them, and she's so happy, and she's like, this is such a wonderful experience. I'm interacting with my garden. And then later on, the same dragon snappers want to fucking kill her. <laughs> yeah. It's... But I like that. You know, some, so maybe some, like, oh, foods and plants that'll, that'll eat, eat our customers up, that type of thing. Okay, okay, yeah. I like that. Do you have anything else? I think that, like, the, the praying mantis machine that her oh. other father was on, 
I think we should have one of those as like a like a mechanical horse that like, I, kids can ride on. I, I okay. I was about to say we should have one of those just for us to ride on, like oh, you, yeah, me, right. and Zach. Like that is that is a like owner of the restaurant, you know, vehicle type of thing. So, yeah, one that's fully functioning just for us, but like one that's like more like a mechanical horse. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Sure. Like, sure. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know because I really dislike praying mantises. Like I, I am so like praying mantises scare the shit out of me. Which is one of the things about this movie that I was like, that is weird. So I don't know if Ben knows it. There's one time I was actually like in upstate New York when I was really young. I had to have been like eight or nine or something, and I was at this person's house, and they had like actual a backyard, and we were in their backyard, and they had this weird pipe. And now I know today it was like a like a a water discharge pipe. Like all the gutters filtered into one thing and gave this pipe like far away from the house so like water wouldn't pool around the house. And I remember I was like, what the fuck is this pipe? And me and my stupid little kid age looked directly into the pipe, like face up to the pipe. And there was a praying mantis directly at the start of it. Oh, shit. And it scared the shit out of me. <laughs> because I don't think I'd ever seen a praying mantis before, so I do not like praying mantises. I mean, uh, that's that's actually something we didn't talk about. This movie's kind of scary. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. We, right. we, didn't, we talked about so much about the, the hardcore existential meaning of this. This movie's somewhat absolutely horrifying. There's yeah. kid ghosts that don't have eyes. There's giant bugs. We get the fucking Coraline doll at the beginning moving position of its own free will, which scared the shit out of me. Oh, there, there's a reason that if you go to the Letterboxd reviews for this movie, many reviews say, I'm throwing out all of my buttons tonight. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of, of somebody who's never seen a creature, uh, I actually just the other day was at, at Tim Hortons and I was in, in, in line picking up a coffee and uh, I, my fiance was with me and, and I saw a chipmunk and I was like, hey, look, a chipmunk. And like right as I was in the process of saying, hey, look, a chipmunk. The, the person who was bringing my coffee came up to the window and they were like, holy fuck, what the shit was that? And I was like, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was a chipmunk. And they were like, no, it just like ran across. The, yeah, I was like, it was like, yeah, it was like a, a chipmunk. Like, yeah, you're, you're like, it's it's the really close cousin of that that uh, that rat that they based Pikachu off of. It's kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so anyway. Ben, any, uh, any other snacks? Anything, any other restaurant things or anything like that? You know, I'm always partial to those, like, extra toasty cheeses, and I'm pretty sure I had some of those while I was watching the movie. Okay, I was about to say, where the hell did that come from? But you ate that while you were watching it. Okay, that's fine, that's fine. So, with that being said, man, Henry Selleck, I'm sad to see you go. We... I cannot wait, personally, until you release another movie. We will cover it for sure. Now that, you know, Rob and Ben have become experts on his entire filmography, I guess then that leaves two things to end this episode. One, next week... Next week, Ben, we're bumping geese. It's the unofficial start to Monstober. We're going to be hitting some great, good old, terrible quality 8-pixel Goosebumps episodes. I can't fucking wait. (laughs) Ben's like, I've never been wanting to buy Goosebumps on DVD more because Rob wants to make sure I see no quality. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm almost certain that I don't even know what any of the characters look like in any of the episodes of Goosebumps. Sure, but that's next week, the unofficial start to Monstober. Of course, Goosebumps is going to be a good time. We're going to do our usual, you know, um, uh, two half-an-hour episodes and one, you know, long-form episode. That's what we're going to discuss. God damn it, Rob. The whole turnstile thing. Earlier, I, I called her my fiance. She's my wife now. Oh, God, that's right. Oh, my God, your wife by, like, a month and a half. <laughs> yeah, it's... <laughs> okay okay look at that look at that 
uh, now I'm just thinking that we should have your wife on an episode to go, Ben, why are you doing this? <laughs> like, not to discuss things, just to pop in for one moment and be like, Ben, take care of the children. And you're like, I got to talk about 1990s goosebumps. <laughs> you change the diaper. <laughs> No, that, 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 that's a really good point. But the other thing, of course, we have to talk about is how do we end this episode? And I don't think there's any other contender than uh, what is known as the Other Father song, the song that the Other Father plays on the piano for Coraline about Coraline in reverse. What do you think? Perfect. Okay. Sounds great. Ben's ready to be done. <laughs> Ben's like, fucking goddamn rub three weeks of Henry Selleck in stop motion. <laughs> So next week, tune in for Goosebumps. Here's some The Other Father song in reverse. Ben, I'm so glad we got to go through this. I'm so glad you got to learn something about animation. I got to learn something about the negative side of animation. Jesus Christ. We're too good together. Check out the Patreon. That's the other thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I don't, I don't think we've mentioned it this episode, but yeah, we do have Patreon. We, yeah, we mentioned it like brief moments. We, didn't, we skipped over the whole, the whole ending thing, and let's just wrap it up with check out the Patreon. Check out that run episode coming out soon. Check out the Monstober episodes coming out soon. Good old Monster House, yeah. yeah. Even look in the back catalog for some good old Adventure Time. Jeez, at this point, Trees Lounge. Wow, talk about a, a meaningful discussion. Trees Lounge, you know? Yeah, Trees Damn. Lounge. Damn. That was a problem. Talk um, about Master of Disguise when we, when we complained about how good that movie could have been, you know, for three fucking hours. God damn, I'm, I haven't edited that. At the time of this recording, I haven't edited it yet. I just have all the clips I need to put in, and it's like two fucking full pages of my notebook. <laughs> oh, God. Become another person. Become another person. Become another person. Become another person. <laughs> okay, I should probably just stop this at this point. There's <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> <laughs>